Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over a hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black Talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com Were you married when she committed suicide? Uh, not, not at that time. We had, got, we had been divorced by, for a couple of years, and it was uh, obvious over time, I mean, after the fact and all, it, it was obvious that it was her continuing depression that was just deepening that I uh, had, um, had, had broken up our marriage. We were uh, happy for like, what, six and a half years, and then a series of events occurred that uh, uh, just caused her to, to become more and more isolated from me and from the rest of her family. And she came in one day and said, I don't want to be married anymore. And um, uh, we, we tried to keep it together for, for about a you know, year and a half and then finally divorced. And um, uh, I, I hoped it would make her happy. It sure, it sure wasn't making me any happier. But uh, at that point, especially as young as I was then, I was brokenhearted. She was brokenhearted. We decided just to call it quits. But we still remained friends. And even it talked a little bit. I mean, toward the end, uh, you know, we, we'd still go out to dinner once in a while and this sort of thing. And, 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 and toward the end, had even talked about possibly getting it back together again. But uh, I didn't think it was going to work. Nevertheless, uh, we, we were still friends, uh, and she had uh, uh, found that that ending the marriage certainly didn't make her any happier. Uh, it only increased her isolation. She bought a house um, with a, she thought she was going to be, be buying it with a fellow she was dating, but then they broke up, and so she wanted to buy the house on her own anyway in Hyde Park near the University of Chicago campus. And, you know, uh, in in the end, her, in, in, in her generic suicide note, as she called it, uh, she uh, talked in there quite plaintively about um, uh, how living in a, in a big house by yourself can, can be a great prison. That's sort of the way it was. I mean, it, it was very sad uh, toward the end, and uh, it, was, um, it, was, it was a learning the hard way experience for me and a lot of other folks because she could wear the mask so well at work every day. 
she could produce wonderful award-winning columns. She could, um, not only for the Tribune, but also she did this little writing for the Washington Post for Newsweek. She could um, uh, go out and give public speeches. She could appear on TV talk shows like this one or the more raucous panel discussions in Chicago. She appeared on ABC Nightline one night, uh, appeared on a number of programs, and could put forth such a marvelous public face that it completely masked the pain that she was experiencing inside. And so it made it harder for me and for others to believe it. You know, Brian, after uh, this um, uh, whole painful experience uh, and, and uh, the news came out of her suicide, I began to hear from people far and near, uh, people I worked with uh, in the, the media in Chicago and uh, other folks who uh, came to me with uh, and confided private stories about their own families, about depression uh, with relatives, about suicide with relatives, and um, how much pain the survivors of suicide go through. And that was a big help. I began, it, it was a real maturing experience for me all of a sudden, and of course getting a whole lot of knowledge I wish I'd had before uh, to, to learn more about the warning signs and this sort of thing. But, but, but that too is a form of survivor's guilt that I found myself going through. How much of uh, her depression do you think came from her blackness? You know, you can never really separate these things out very well. Uh, one thing I have found about trying to figure out why people commit suicide is you can't figure out why people commit suicide. I mean, it's, it's uh, very complicated. However, there's little question that as far as her own personal expressions of her depression went, it was like, you know, 90% through the filter of race. In other words, uh, if you look at her writings, both um, her uh, columns and essays as well as her, her suicide notes, uh, she always talked about race, you know. Uh, in fact, in her suicide note, she said, I'll never live to see my people free anyway. So you naturally get the impression that race had a lot to do with the weight pulling her down. Context of white supremacy, Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Friday, March 11th, 2016. So I have been told black mental health said that at the very beginning of the year uh, that's something that we should pay uh, acute attention to over the course of this calendar year uh, this is our weekly book study session uh, we are doing Leonita McLean a foot in each world uh, the audio clip you heard at the beginning of the book was her former husband uh, Clarence Page who is also a black journalist uh, he edited uh, the collection and gives uh, an introduction at the beginning of the book and also gives uh, an introduction for some of the essays uh, including a, a rather relatively lengthy uh, introduction for one of the essays that we're going to do this week her notorious piece How Chicago Taught Me to Hate Whites, but that is a profound interview uh, portion uh, of an interview that he conducted uh, back in the mid 1990s, Mr. Clarence Page. Uh, with that, uh, we will get right to it. Uh, phenomenal reading this week, including that essay, How Chicago Taught Me to Hate Whites. Uh, really uh, have your brain computers working at an optimal level. Pay attention. Looking forward to some outstanding commentary. Leonita McLean, A Foot in Each World. Context of White Supremacy, audio segment number one. July 2nd, 1983. Grains of Truth in Fiction. A new book called The Negotiations is subtitled A Novel of Tomorrow. But that tomorrow is the not-so-distant year 1987. The first jolt in its plot is that Ronald Reagan is not re-elected in 1984. 
The reason is that unemployment improved for whites, but not at all for blacks. Job riots broke out, and the fictional president, Dorsey Talbot Davison, a Democrat, won. Walter Mondale et al. should remember that this is fiction. But that is not the end of it. It was shortly after 8 p.m. on Tuesday, September 1st. The polls had closed in the most unusual election ever held in the United States of America. Unlike in past times, white Americans had not participated in this election. Only black Americans had been eligible to vote, and they had flocked to the polling places in unprecedented numbers. Later, an analysis would reveal that of those black citizens registered to vote, 85% had voted. It was a referendum through a yes or no vote to ratify or reject the following proposition. The Black American Council is hereby authorized to negotiate with the United States of America for the creation of a separate and independent state within the continental limits of the United States for American citizens of African descent. Black Americans in the book vote 52% to 48% to secede from the Union. The premise is a fascinating one to ponder on this 4th of July weekend, with many blacks feeling abandoned in the land of the free and the home of the brave. The book is by Herman Cromwell Gilbert, a Southsider and former assistant to U.S. Rep. Gus Savage. It is the first work from Path Press, a Chicago publishing house that is reintroducing itself. Path, the reincarnation of a firm begun in the late 60s, publishes work by and about black Americans. The idea of black seceding is improbable, but it has a long tradition in the United States. There have been back to Africa and black nationhood movements in the past. The country of Liberia, founded by freed U.S. slaves in 1822, is an example. In the 20s, Marcus Garvey had a decrepit boat ready to set sail. The late Elijah Muhammad's version was a more recent example. Black anger and political strength might just lead to such a confident rejection of whites. But let's not be alarmist. The book is not a sociology tract just one writer's fancy. It is not the make-believe separation plot that makes the book significant, but the sentiments that lead to the vote to secede, sentiments that are genuine and growing. The disenchantment that fuels the plot did not have to be invented. President Reagan could have been the inspiration for the book with his retreat on affirmative action cuts in the kinds of social programs that gave the black middle class bootstraps to pull on and proposed tax breaks for private schools that discriminate. The direction the president is taking the nation will not likely lead to separation, but he certainly ought to think about why 26 million blacks aren't traveling with him. Any one of these notions from the novel is fairly widespread in actuality. Black America was really saying that it no longer had confidence in white America. 
the post-civil rights, anti-black mood in the country began under Nixon and intensified under Reagan. The government had little respect for blacks in general. And one downtrodden character who calls himself the man who had never had a job is especially and painfully real. He is nearing 30, a handyman in a tavern who relies for food on the kindness of a mom and pop grocery where he gets rotting fruits and stale lunch meat. The character speaks for that here and now 25% of unemployed black adults and 48% of unemployed black teenagers when he says, I ain't never had a job, been looking for one for almost 12 years, but I ain't never had a job. Think about it. Me and thousands and thousands of other young men, black and white, but especially black, who want to work but ain't never had a job and ain't got much chance of getting one. He signs on to the black homeland idea with a despairing, things can't get any worse. The Black American Council of the novel is a six-member panel representing a cross-section of blacks, from nationalists to cautious moderates to old-line integrationists. The council was founded in the winter of 1984 after the job riots were halted by a government crackdown which had been much more ruthless than that exercise against the Black Panthers and other militant groups more than a decade earlier. Here, too, the facts are stranger than the fiction because many Blacks ardently believe police action against them could be fomented by the most minor incident. Of course, there is a 48% of Black America in the book who votes against separation, including the Congressional Black Caucus, a mysterious Los Angeles multimillionaire who schemes to thwart the idea, and a dissenting member of the Black American Council who quits before the negotiations get underway. President Davidson's antagonistic view of the referendum is that if Lincoln was willing to abide the evil of slavery to preserve the Union, then definitely I am willing to abide the lesser evil of inequality for a minority of our citizens to preserve it. The reader is taken through mass demonstrations, the legal and constitutional obstacles to separation, the obligatory FBI plant within the Black Council, murders by the authorities and a black militant group. CIA intervention to keep African nations from flirting with the proposed black American nation and a call for black white unity from a feminist leader. And there is also a revolutionary platform of social and economic reforms passed at an AFL CIO convention to correct the past sins of discrimination and entice blacks back into the fold. These include a Marshall Plan for Urban Renewal, a National Health Plan, full employment, a reduction to a 30-hour work week, and nationalization of the utilities. Author Gilbert has perhaps taken genuine sentiments to an implausible conclusion. One can quarrel with his plot, but not with his perception of those sentiments.
Washington Post, July 24, 1983. How Chicago Taught Me to Hate Whites. One Sunday in July 1983, readers of the Washington Post were greeted by a startling headline in the newspaper's Outlook section. How Chicago Taught Me to Hate Whites. The author was Leonita McLean, and while the Post editors offered the view as a personal account of the intense emotions stirred up by an election whose volatility had drawn national attention, the piece kicked up a controversy of its own in Chicago. That it had been published in an out-of-town newspaper only caused more of a fuss among Chicagoans who feel defensive enough about the city's reputation as one of the nation's most segregated. McLean's account gave fuel to the city's detractors by describing with characteristic eloquence how she was yanked out of her middle-class comfort by the bitter racial animosity that emerged during the city's 1983 general election campaign. Incumbent Mayor Jane Byrne and state's attorney Richard M. Daly, son of the late Mayor Richard J. Daly, were the clear favorites in the race until Harold Washington, a black congressman from the city's south side, galvanized black voters and forged a coalition with reform-minded whites and Hispanics to win a plurality in the Democratic primary election. His unexpected victory led to a revolt in white precincts that gave the entire campaign an ugly tinge of racial animosity. The Republican challenger, former state rep Bernard Epton, had been such a long shot before the primary that even Republican leaders donated to his campaign with great reluctance. But after Washington became the Democratic nominee, Epton became the great white hope, spurring defections by white Democrats like, unlike anything ever seen in Chicago history. McLean's observation on the mean spirit that emerged out of the city's precincts during that turbulent time would have been provocative enough in a local journal. In the Post, it was dirty laundry hung out for all the world to see in the leading newspaper of the nation's capital. She would fill three cardboard boxes with the mail that poured in to the Post and the Tribune in response to the piece. A number of whites predictably said she was painting with too broad of a brush, that many whites supported Washington and were crucial to his victories in the primary and general elections. Some blacks chided her for being naive if she was so surprised by the behavior of white bigots. Alderman Aloysius Majergic introduced a resolution in city council calling on McLean to apologize to the people of this great city and for the Tribune to reprimand her. City Hall watchers got a laugh out of that. Majergic represents one of the least racially tolerant areas in Chicago. It was in his part of town that the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. was hit with a brick during a civil rights march in the 1960s prompting King to remark that Chicago had more hateful and violent crowds than any he had seen in Alabama or Mississippi.
Majergic's resolution was sent to committee without debate. John Madigan, a local white radio commentator, was sufficiently enraged to broadcast three commentaries in five workdays, castigating McLean. Later in the month, he broadcast a fourth and, following her death, a fifth. Ignoring most of what she had to say, he latched on to her descriptions of how she had been turned into a hate-filled spewer of invective and sometimes feels like machine-gunning every white face on the bus. Madigan, a devoted defender of the late Mayor Daly, said Tribune editors should be no less outraged by McLean's words than they were over Daly's shoot-to-kill order against rioters in the 1960s. Overlooked, of course, was how McLean meant the words in a figurative sense, while Daly's order was indeed an official command. But there also was a revealingly large amount of supportive mail and phone calls. As happened in response to her Newsweek column, a number of blacks thanked her for expressing thoughts they wanted to express, but for which they could not find the words. I like her anger, said one black woman. So did a few sympathetic whites. Though the commentary describes the turbulent atmosphere surrounding the 1983 elections as seen through one woman's eyes, it speaks volumes about the frustrations felt by black Americans over the resiliency of America's racial caste system. While McLean, in her own mind, might have done everything right in trying to succeed and be accepted by white America, she, like other blacks, was told in no uncertain terms that blacks who aspire to high office will be fought no less vigorously than they were in Dr. King's day. Now I know, she wrote, solving the racial problem will take more than living, marrying, and going to school together, and all of those other laudable but naive goals I defend. This episode made even the first step seem so far from reach. Interestingly, one also detects in her writings a sense of guilt for the way her position of prominence was letting white people off the hook, freeing them from sharing her profound sense of obligation to the black masses. Interestingly, McLean did not like the headline. She thought it overstated her case. But, in fairness to the headline writer, her commentary concludes without equivocation that the racially tense atmosphere surrounding the campaign that led up to Chicago's electing its first black mayor in 1983 did teach her that I can hate. It is toward this empathetic statement that the mood of the peace builds. Perhaps Leonita was surprised by the heat of her own anger. I really didn't think Chicago was ready to deal with the issue again so soon, she explained to Neil Tesser, one of her Northwestern University classmates, who, as a columnist for 
the Chicago Weekly Reader newspaper, wondered why she chose an out-of-town medium to express her rage. I wanted to explain the Chicago psychology to an outside audience, such as Esquire. But then, the time element was getting away from me. It would have had whiskers on it by the time it appeared in a national magazine. So I started thinking of a newspaper that would have a national audience. Through it all, her supervisors at the Tribune defended her, even though they too were more than a little surprised to find that the piece that appeared in print was more volatile than the last draft she had shown them as a courtesy. I don't agree with her characterization of how whites felt at the election of Harold Washington. Tribune editor James Squires told the reader, I know many who were very happy, but Leonidas' willingness and eloquence in saying it was a positive stroke. It shows us how far we still have to go in race relations. Throughout the controversy, McLean stood by her words. Yes, McLean said, the article is a representation of the inner workings of a black mind, but it could have been one of any number of professions. I just happened to be a woman working at the Chicago Tribune, but there were so many black people, school teachers, movie ushers, who could have come up with the same emotions and hurts. Chicago. I'd be a liar if I did not admit to my own hellish confusion. How has a purebred moderate like me, the first black editorial writer for the Chicago Tribune, turned into a hate-filled spewer of invective in such little time? Even today, the vicious psychotic events leading up to and following Harold Washington's election as the first black mayor of Chicago leave me torn as never before. I've become a two-headed, two-hearted creature. The sides are in continual conflict, by turns pitying, then vilifying the other, sometimes with little reason, never with tranquility. In one day, my mind has sped from the naive thought that everything would be all right in the world if people would just intermarry, to the naive thought that we should establish a black homeland where we would never have to see a white face again. The campaign was a race war. So is the continuing feud between Harold Washington and the white aldermen usurping his authority. Even black and white secretaries in City Hall are not speaking to each other. But why am I so readily doubting and shutting out whites I thought of as friends? I am not one of those, despite a comfortable life, who have forgotten my origins. It is just that I had not been so rudely reminded of them in so long. Through 10 years working my way to my present position at the Tribune, I have resided in a gentrified, predominantly white, north side, lakefront liberal neighborhood where high rents are the chief social measure. In neither place have I forgotten the understood but unspoken fact of my difference, my blackness. Yet, I have been unprepared for the silence with which my white colleagues greeted Washington's nomination. I've been crushed by their inability to share the excitement 
of one of us making it into power. I've built walls against whites who I once thought of as my lunch and vacation friends. And I've wrapped myself in rage as this sick, twisted city besieged the newspaper with letters wishing acts of filth by black baboons on the daughters of its employees just because it endorsed this black man. And evilness still possesses this town and it continues to weigh down my heart. During my morning ritual in the bathroom mirror, my radio tuned to the news talk station that is as much a part of my routine as shaping my eyebrows. I've heard the voice of this evil. And what would become a standard bigot on the street interview, the voice was going on about the blacks. The blacks, this, the blacks, that. The blacks, the blacks, the blacks. My eyes fogged, but not from the bathroom steam. The blacks, it is the article that offends. The words are held out like a foul-smelling sock, transported, two-fingered, at the end of an outstretched arm to the hamper while the nose is pinched shut. The blacks, it would make me feel like machine gunning every white face on the bus. Why couldn't these people just say blacks, letting it roll from the tongue? The blacks, these people were talking about me as I stood in my bathroom mirror neatly outlining my lips, about to put on a dress for success suit and silk blouse. These were the people who dislike welfare recipients for fitting their stereotypes and who despise me because I do not. The users of the blacks make no distinction, unlike the liberals who in their weaker moments will say, well, I wouldn't mind having you next door. You're different, you know. Leonita McLean, the black, just another nigger. The tears returned when Jane Byrne, soundly defeated in the primary, announced a write-in campaign to save the city from the brash black man and his opponent, the avuncular Jew. My editorial writer colleagues were probably left in as much disbelief by the obscenity I spat at the television as by anything that little Snow Queen had just said. With my back to the closed door of my office, seemingly focused on my word processor, I cried in anger. My God, I implored, what do these white people want of us? My transformation began the morning after Washington's primary victory. Everyone in Chicago stayed up until 2 a.m. when Washington claimed victory. Horrified white Chicago turned in for a fitful night. But no one black slept either, though there were never so many bright black eyes as there were the next morning. That morning, black people had a step and a beat that was more than the old joked about natural rhythm. Smile shone as brilliant as the blue Washington buttons that a white political editor astutely interpreted as blue buttons of hope. Those buttons would become a badge of courage of oneness. Even now, many blacks continue to wear them. 
Black strangers exchanged sly smiles on the streets. A jubilant scream went up, but it was a silent one, something like the high-pitched tones only animals can discern. The black man won. We did it. It rose to the stratosphere crystallized and sprinkled every one of us like sugared rain. We had a feeling, and above all, we had power. No one in this town had talked about anything but the election for weeks. But suddenly, the morning after the primary, whites could not find enough other things to talk about if they talked at all. Not just the most bigoted of bigots, but all whites even the more open-minded of my fellow journalists. Even the standard niceties took on a different quality. Their good mornings had the tenor of death rattles, not just the usual pre-coffee hoarseness. There was that forced quality, an awkwardness, an end to spontaneity, even fear in the eyes of people who had never thought about me one way or the other before. So many whites unconsciously had never considered that blacks could do much of anything, least of all get a black candidate this close to being mayor of Chicago. My colleagues looked up and realized perhaps for the first time that I was one of them. I was suddenly threatening. The difference that everybody had tried to cover up was there in the open. It leaked right out and stared at us and defied us to try and put it away. Whites were out of their wits with plain wet-your-pants fear. Happy black people can only mean unhappy white people in this town. I never realized how far I had strayed. I would begin that morning to build my defenses brick by brick, to shut out people I had cried with, people I had never felt more akin to than when we traveled to foreign lands, toting our shared Americanism. I would begin to discern the full frontal view of the evil. It is the evil that caused white co-workers to stop talking when blacks strolled by. It is the evil that led blacks to caucus and revert and revert to the old days of talking about whitey. It is the evil of protesters, their faces red hot with hate at a Catholic church where former vice president Walter Mondale and Washington were jeered. The theme of these ensuing months was set and hardening so intense and oppressive was the atmosphere here that black and white Tribune colleagues sought refuge in my office from the foulness. A white colleague came in to explain away why he could not vote for Harold Washington, as if what I thought of him was really important, as if my office were a confessional. One black female on the staff was thrown into a fit of anxiety one day, troubled by suddenly not even wanting to go to lunch with one of the white women on the staff with whom she is close. The lone black Tribune reporter on the campaign trail, Monroe Anderson, was so beaten down by what he was seeing in the streets that he came into my office turned retreat 
and folded himself in a chair and just stared at the floor. Anderson is indisputably one of the most devil-may-care persons on the staff. The one with the slightly body joke. The one who keeps the party lively. The one with the quick line. His exceptional sense of humor keeps everyone going. But during this election, it failed even him. As the hate campaign against Washington got meaner, I began to realize I had not been overreacting. I had been playing it safe, as each day up to the election would verify. The Chicago Tribune endorsed Harold Washington in a long and eloquent Sunday editorial. It was intended to persuade the bigots. It would have caused any sensible person at least to think. It failed. The mail and calls besieged the staff. The middle range of letters had the words lies and nigger lovers scratched across the editorial. Hoping to shame these people, make them look at themselves, the newspaper printed a full page of these rantings. But when the mirror was presented to them, the bigots reveled before it. The page only gave them aid and comfort in knowing their numbers. That is what is wrong with this town. Being a racist is as respectable and expected as going to church. Filthy literature littered the city streets like the propaganda air blitzes of World War II. The subway would be renamed Soul Train. The elevators in City Hall would be removed because blacks would prefer to change floors by swinging from the cables. Anderson, temporarily regaining his jocularity, plastered the flyers like art posters all over his work cubicle. Most black staffers knew it was laughing to keep from crying. Whites grew more silent. In the police stations, reports were whispered about fights between longtime black and white squad car partners. Flyers proclaiming the new city of Chicago with crossed drumsticks as the city seal were tacked to police station bulletin boards. The schools actually formulated plans to deal with racial violence, just in case. I brought the madness from the streets into work with me. I dissected why some people had cultivated my friendship, why I was so quick to offer it unconditionally, straining as hard as they to prove a point, to say, see how easily it is if we all just smile and pretend. I had put so much effort into belonging and the whites in my professional and social circles had put so much effort into making me feel as if I belonged that we all deceived ourselves. There is always joking about it. Those matching of suntans against black skin or the exchange of dialect or finding common ground on the evils of racism. But none of us had ever dealt with the deeper inhibitions, myths, and misperceptions that this society has force-fed us. The issue is there no matter the social strata. Now I know solving the racial problem will take more than living, marrying, and going to school together 
and all of those other laudable but naive goals I defended. This episode made even these first steps so far. What is there then to believe in? Who was I to trust? How was I to know which whites were good and which were bad? How many of my co-workers wouldn't even want me next door? After all of these years of lunch dates and the familial togetherness that comes naturally from working next to someone 40 hours a week, how could I know who was on the level? If I was feeling this way, what were my brothers and sisters in the street feeling? Could this town be raised in a deranged moment? What litmus test could I devise? I distanced myself from everyone white, watching, listening for hints of latent prejudice. But there were no formulas to follow. Even an expression of support for Washington would not convince me, so certain was I of everyone's disassemblance. I drew up a mental list of those whites who could and could not be trusted. Revelation after revelation, doubt after doubt assaulted me. First on the list was K, Bouncy Smiley K. No real names are used. How she had used me all of these years like a black pet to prove her liberalism. I was safe. She could show me off without ever having to deal with the real issue. The next time she came skipping in to show me the neat pair of shoes she had found during her lunch hour or to talk about the neat movie she had seen or the neat restaurant we should try, I would throw my dictionary at her and advise her that having one black person, me, on her Christmas card list did not make her socially aware. What about Clark? He always said the right things about race, viewed injustice with the proper alarm, but suddenly I questioned his sincerity. The next time he showed up at my door, my office door, I would make him halt at the threshold. I would deny entry to my neighborhood on the ground that he was white. Then asked how it felt to be discriminated against to make the point that his talk was just that. What did he know? He had not lived in this skin. What about Ken? Kind-eyed, sensitive, cultured, thoughtful, cerebral Ken. No, he couldn't be a racist. Or could he? What about Nan, with whom I had traveled? She headed the boards of church agencies in the poorest black neighborhoods. Now, there was an exception. We had talked about race matters, about matters of the heart, about the differences that somehow did not alter those things that made us the same. What about Lydia in Michigan, who had shared all of my life secrets? She, too, passed. It would be so easy just to dismiss everyone white. Why was it so easy for whites to classify me, the blacks, or you, exceptional blacks, and the rest of the blacks, but not so easy for me to classify them? When white friends began to initiate conversation with, well, I'm no racist, but I no longer had to worry about my test. 
everyone was suspect. Bitter am I, that is mild. This affair has cemented my journalist's acquired cynicism, robbing me of most of my innate black hope for true integration. It has made me sparkle as I reveled in the comradeship of blackness. It has banished me to nightmarish bouts of sullenness. It has made me weld on a mask, censor every word, rethink every thought. It has put a face on the evil that no one wants to acknowledge is within them. It has made me mistrust people, white and black. This battle has made me hate. And that hate does not discriminate. I've abhorred the gaggles of smug, giggly little white kids outspending daddy's money who start life a thousand yards ahead of black kids. I've detested my colleagues at the Chicago Tribune whose antiseptic suburban worlds are just as narrow, who pretend to have immense racial concerns and knowledge, but who don't know blacks other than me and who haven't even come in touch with ordinary whites in decades. I've been repulsed by the scruffy black kids with their shoeshine kits on glitzy Michigan Avenue, all too real a reminder of the station to which some would like to remand blacks and the limits that I've tried to overcome. I've detested the pinstripe white junior executives who make their contribution to race relations in the quarters they flip to these kids. Fortunately, I've noticed no rubs of the kids' heads for good luck. And of course, I've despised the bigots, the only group towards whom I do not continually have to re-examine my emotions. The election has come and gone. Washington won. But to look at the battlefield, the rebuilding that must be done is defeating. I have resumed lunching with some of the white colleagues I avoided for weeks, though the conversation will stay forever circumscribed. Some have fallen away, failures of my litmus test. New ones have been found, but no white will ever be trusted so readily again with the innermost me. It is difficult to have the same confidence in my judgment about whites that I used to have. It is difficult to say friend. Is that saying I have become a bigot? Let's just say I have returned to the fold, have become integration shy. At least I tried once to extend my hand, which is more than most whites can say. They do not encounter enough blacks in their lifetime to try. Why is Chicago this way? Why my beloved city so vital, so prosperous, so exhilarating? I do not have an answer. I wish I did. So here I am, blacker than I've ever been, but above all, human, a condition I share with everyone of every hue. I feel, I mistrust, I cry, and I now know that I can hate. August 29, 1983. Tree shaker or jelly maker. This is the land where every boy is supposed to be able to grow up to be president.
The old saying made no mention of females or blacks, but it may yet be rewarded. What with Savvy Magazine profiling San Francisco Mayor Dianne Feinstein as White House material and the Reverend Jesse Jackson poised to join the race among the six announced Democrats. That a black or female has every right to run for the nation's highest office is at last accepted, and that bit of progress should not be ignored. Now comes the hard part, whether there should be a black presidential candidate at all in 1984, and if so, who? Should there be a black candidate? The, the Democratic contenders are more in agreement on this than much of black officialdom. Former Vice President Walter Mondale, considered the front runner, has the most to lose. Yet he and the others have said publicly they welcome the competition and that it would not hurt the party's chances of defeating President Reagan. Privately, though, they may be keeping fingers crossed that one never materializes. Black elected officials are divided about whether anyone black should run. And they are in rancorous dispute about Reverend Jesse Jackson. Mayors Andrew Young of Atlanta and Coleman Young of Detroit, both backers of Mondale, assert that a black will drain energy from the effort to unseat Ronald Reagan, which is necessary at any cost. This view is endorsed by the NAACP's Benjamin Hooks. But Mayors Harold Washington of Chicago, Richard Hatcher of Gary, and John Ford of Tuskegee, Alabama, countered that a black candidate is the best way to work up enough enthusiasm to get blacks to register and to vote. Well, that the democratic process was enough of a reason. They also argue that it will force the white presidential candidates to look at issues that concern blacks. This last is a dubious argument because in the political season, every smart politician gives lip service to everybody's issues anyway, and none does so with any more sincerity than the next. Even Reagan has gotten religion of late about blacks, women, Hispanics, the hungry, and everyone else he previously disregarded. With a black or not, black issues will be addressed. The Democrats can be smug, knowing that blacks really have no other way to vote, but they can't be stupid. Chicago's recent election and the growing Hispanic voice automatically have impact. There doesn't need to be a candidate representative of any group, but why shouldn't there be? Politics is about getting the numbers, however they might add up. But Jesse, Jackson is acting more like an official candidate every day, racing between speeches with thrice his usual energy and planning European jaunts and audiences with royalty to show that a black candidate can have more than domestic social concerns on his agenda. He has asked Gary Mayor Hatcher to head a committee to look into the practicality of his running, 
though he has not yet officially declared. Until last week, the biggest debate was whether he really was serious or just basking in the attention until some until such time as the demand for commitment became too pressing and he would gracefully, of course, bow out. Don't look for an endorsement here. Captivating, stirring, brilliant he can be, but his zero experience in public office is a big question mark. And while Jackson has a significant place in the civil rights struggle, his aura is still of the streets, not the Oval Office. To put it in his own inimitable fashion, some people are tree shakers and some people are jelly makers. He has long maintained that he is a tree shaker, the agitator. Others can make the jelly, take care of the follow through, though they would be nowhere without his mighty hands shaking the tree. That, it appears, is just what he's doing in presidential politics, shaking things up. That's not all bad, but to survive in politics, you have to make the jelly too. And finally, it is insultingly presumptuous to think that blacks will fall in line behind a black candidate on the national scale, particularly Jackson. The chance of run, Jesse, run from blacks and whites that are greeting him throughout the country are not official polls. One can go on forever about the subject, but the bottom line is no black is going to be president of the United States for so far in the future that it isn't worth pondering. And even though the Democratic contenders have said they would consider a black vice presidential running mate, don't hold your breath on that one either. So what is there to lose in running a black candidate? The animosity black voters have for Reagan will not be turned on a white Democrat who appears to thwart a black candidate because of the simple logic above. Blacks don't fool themselves that a black candidate will make it. The exercise, the reactions would be harmless and educational, a drill leading up to someday doing the real thing. But Jesse? August 27th, 1983. Who will help black America? Are black people hopeless? No black person with any dignity could accept this thought for a millisecond without disintegrating into madness. And yet the question nags the thinking person, no matter what color or how poor or well off. Black unemployment, the inmate population, suicide, homicide, neighborhood crime, illegitimate births, Single-parent homes are on the rise. Black life expectancy, test scores, income are generally lower than those of white America. It is easy for some of other races to to dismiss this. The most narrow-minded, of course, cling to theories of genetic inferiority as the reason for these ills. On the other hand, even the most thoughtful whites sometimes view as empty excuses, the arguments that there are socioeconomic reasons for black failure to advance. But anyone black must confront these questions daily. Is the lot of black America doomed eternally? 
some cruel hoax perpetuated by laughing gods. How long must a people yearn for betterment? And for those blacks who are fortunate, there is sometimes the added curse of guilt for having made it when so many others from the same neighborhood, indeed the same homes, continue to suffer. There is, of course, that thing called racism, as every day is tying one's shoes. It is the way in which one approaches blacks with a ready set of assumptions about their intelligence or job or speaking abilities or even more basic, whether they should be approached at all. But even civil rights veteran Bayard Rustin writes in Newsweek this week, it would be convenient to ascribe all the problems confronting black Americans to the persistence of racism. But while racism continues to exert a baneful influence upon our society, the plight of black Americans today is more and more the consequence of a number of important non-racist structural features of our economy. The occasions for my reflections in Rustin's essay is the 20th anniversary of the March on Washington when 250,000 people let freedom ring on the Capitol Mall and helped make history. A march in remembrance will take place today. What has changed since the tumultuous time when Martin Luther King Jr. was indeed a king to much of black America? Much of the news from black America remains grave. A third of the 26.5 million population still lives in poverty. It is not, of course, as bad as it would have been without Dr. King's stirring words, marches in the face of attack dogs and hoses and days in jail. But the essence of his message, equality, still is a long way off. And that is the rub. That is why even the black middle class, which one would think content, complains as much as it does. In fact, media stories reflecting on the anniversary have found that many of those blacks who have made it are the most pessimistic. A layer of black America called the underclass is in a frightful directionalist state. The recession, President Reagan's policies and a right face in politics have been detrimental to be sure. But there is an underlying hopelessness now that goes beyond these factors, and it even distresses the middle class. A generation of children has been lost to educational experimenting, the sexual revolution, the changing family, drugs. Whatever goes wrong for white America has a worse impact on black America, and what goes well always has a lesser impact. So that the breakdown in the family generally will with working wives and more divorces has meant that 41% of black households are headed by single women and that 70% of these fall under the sociological catchphrase, the feminization of poverty. Likewise, even if the economy gets better, it will affect blacks last and least. Even the black middle class 
that the media could not write enough about some years ago is largely dependent on government jobs not sharing equally in climbing the corporate ladder. The greatest commitment now in the civil rights struggle must come from the black middle class, which at the same time must guard its own sliver of the economic pie. That is not dishonest or selfish, simply American. And it will be triply hard without the very dollars and cents social programs that help them, programs that have been stripped bare by the Reagan administration. They could not have achieved what they did alone, and they cannot now do for others without that assistance. It will be black self-help that will have to save the underclass, to educate and call for an end to rampant teenage pregnancy, to offer reforms in welfare that will allow fathers to stay in the home, to decrease criminal recidivism, to demand better schools and community services. It will take, for example, the efforts of an Edward Gardner, the Southside black hair care manufacturer, who has begun a black-on-black love campaign to combat black-on-black crime. It will take electing responsive politicians, be they white or black. White America may tire of what it views as grousing by black Americans about their condition, but blacks who are touched by those conditions tire of it and agonize over it a thousand times more and are not simply looking for a handout. Blacks will always have as their primary defense racism, that generic omnipresent miasma they alone can feel. And their frustration is compounded by the difficulty of persuading those who do not feel that it even exists. As impossible as it seemed to earn the right to sit anywhere on a bus, it will be far more difficult to prove that the person next to you has a sign blocking his mind. Yet more despairing still is that 20 years hence, the very questions posed here may remain unanswered. Context of white supremacy. First audio segment complete. Uh, folks would like to chime in, share their thoughts. The number to dial 641-715-3640. The code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. The number again, 641-715-3640. The code, 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. Uh, for folks, if you want to join in and you don't want to use your phone to call in, you can use the free Vope line. should be linked uh, at the Black Talk Radio Network. Uh, if you need the address, it is tiny, T-I-N-Y dot C-C forward slash one race. And that is the number one. Address again, tiny, T-I-N-Y dot C-C forward slash one race and that is the number one when you put that address in 
click the link on the left of the page. It says uh, Vope Line. When you click that, it will open a small window on your screen. The top line is a drop-down menu. Select the number that I just gave out, which again is 641-715-3640. The next line, it will ask for the code. That code again is 564943. Final line, it will ask for a name. You can put in your real name, nickname. Uh, you can press random keys, whatever you're comfortable with. Uh, once you get all that entered, click the green button at the bottom. It will connect you to the program. Uh, you should be able to hear us live, and it is the same procedure. If you would like to participate, you will see the dial pad on your screen. Press star six. Uh, you will then hear the audio prompt. Press number one, and I'll see your hand. We'll get you on the line. Uh, ask again. I'll say it a few times. Uh, folks, if you could not wait until uh, the very last minute, we've been doing this for a long time, so people know the duration of the program. People will wait until there's five minutes left in the program and then put their hand up. If you have a comment, something you think you want to share, go ahead, get your hand up. Uh, we can you know, make time to include any and all comments. Uh, with that, we'll go ahead and nab the folks uh, who dialed in who do have a hand up. Uh, we should have uh, Mr. Demery Four, uh, retired firefighter, uh, Thomas in New York, uh, Roz, and I will uh, guess on somebody who dialed in from a block number. Uh, all of your lines should be open. Uh, if you have comments to share, feel free. Yes, may I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay, greetings, Gus. Uh, greetings to the other callers and listeners. Um, I'll start off with there. It seems to be several different types of depression, you know, and I guess chronic and bipolar, different types. Miss McLean suffered from depression, and depression led to suicide. And sometimes I wonder if all blacks in America don't suffer from some form of depression. Living in a vicious and psychotic system of white supremacy, she admits to her own hellish confusion, and which reminds us that uh, in our fight for counter-racism that we uh, protect our mental health like you pointed out beginning. Um, Ms. McLean was describing herself as I become a two-headed, two-hearted. Two the sides are in continual conflict by turning, pitying, then vilifying the other, sometimes with little reason, never with tranquility. Some of us have a hard time accepting that with all the evidence and indication proving whites are not our friends and that the interaction with us is usually to manipulate and exploit some parts of our body. Um, it seems ironic that, you know, all this was taking place in, the, in Chicago and it seems everything in Chicago is either black and white. You know, they got the Chicago Tribune, the Sun-Times, the readership is usually divided. You know, one, I think, the Tribune, 
uh, even now is endorsing uh, the Republicans and sometimes endorses uh, Democrat. But black people, um, she wrote that the Chicago Tribune, which was predominantly white leadership, endorsed Harold Washington in a long and eloquent Sunday editorial. It was intended to persuade the bigots. It would have caused any sensible person to at least think to think it failed. The mail and calls besieged the staff. The middle range of letters had the word liars and nigger lovers scratched across the editorial. And even the next paragraph, hoping to shame these people, making them look at themselves. The newspaper printed a full page of these rantings. But when the mirror was presented to them, the bigots, and I replaced that with racists, revel before it. That's what's wrong. They re the page gave them aid and comfort in knowing their numbers. That is what is wrong with this town. Being a racist is a respectable and expected as going to church. And that brings up the religion of white supremacy. The people who classify as white practice racism as a form of religion. I'll mute my line. Thanks for taking the call, guys. For sure, for sure. Uh, all the other folks who dialed in with a hand up should be with us. Uh, there, it seems like there are more callers this week. Uh, you could kind of limit it to the uh, five-minute range. That would be grand that we will make time for everybody can comment, and then we should also have time if folks have additional comments that they want to add. Uh, but everybody who dialed in with a hand up should be with us. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Uh, good evening, Gus, and to the callers and listeners. Um, what I, I got out of the first segment um, the first part, grains of truth, um, I find that I remember I used to um, entertain the thought and hope and idea of separating from white people. And so when I read that chapter and she was talking about, you know, this book, The Negotiation, and how the idea of separating from white people, um, it was just like just a, a, a story. But um, I know quite a few people in the Nation of Islam, and, you know, they talk about the separation and separation. And so I remember, like, yeah, you know, that would be a great idea until I, um, you know, listened to uh, Mr. Fuller and understood that this is a global system. Um, there's no place on the planet where white people have are not controlling black people. And so it kind of made sense. Um when I understood that concept that this is global. So um, just reading that just kind of made me think, you know, it really is something that, you know, we think that we can just escape to another place on the planet and we won't have to deal with racism, uh, white supremacy. Um, another thing, uh, when she was talking about um, the feeling that black people uh, had when Harold Washington won and how they were just, you know, excited and had this, you know, these, you know, black people would look at each other on the street and just kind of like have this sense of pride. Um, it just reminded me of what um, I experienced when um, President Obama 
was elected. And even when O.J. Simpson was acquitted, it was just kind of like, you know, it was just a weird, unspoken feeling that people were just, you know, kind of like excited. So that kind of stuck out to me. Um, one thing, too, that um, just throughout this reading, especially this chapter, um, you know, I really see clearly how, um, what, you know, and Mr. Demery just mentioned it, you know, there's, we, my people are not our friends. And that was so frustrating to her just um, when I'm looking at the reading and just listening to the frustration that she felt, especially in the workplace. Um, my past experience just, you know, working around white people uh, is just a, it's, it's crazy because we think that they're our friends and they're not. And um, she was clearly frustrated. And I noticed that, you know, you typically say, you know, it's a tragic arrangement for a black person and uh, um, or a non-white person and a and a white person to be in a sexual relationship, but I think also it's a tragic arrangement for black people to really consider white people as friends because more and more I see that that is so confusing. You we're we're trying to see that you know oh because she even described you know she went through her friends Kay Clark Ken and Nan she's just trying to see like who's racist who's not. And it's so confusing because of this so-called friendship. So um, I did like the fact that eventually she did realize that everyone was a suspect. Um, but then also later on she was like, well, you know, she continued, like, trying to rebuild friendship. So it was a lot of confusion, naturally so, um, that she was going through. And then um, another thing that she asked was, you know, are black people hopeless? And I know that that's something that I've always, like, wondered. Um, that's one of the things that it's like, you know, I think I've, and I've caught into um, the program with Mr. Mr. Fuller before, like, you know, is it, what is the point? What's the point of us doing this? Like, is there any hope for black people? But I remember even you, Gus, saying, like, you know, we wouldn't have this program if it wasn't a way for this um, system to be um, demolished and replaced. So, um, that's, it was just interesting that that was one of the essays that she wrote. But one thing that I didn't understand, um, and then I'll mute myself after this, the, uh, article that she titled tree shaker or jelly maker, I wasn't quite clear what the jelly maker was. Um, and if anyone kind of understood that, um, I mean, I kind of got the tree shaker part, but what is a jelly maker? So, um, if anyone had any, um, you know, insight on that, that would be great. And I'll mute my line. Have you heard? Yes, sir. Sorry. Oh, um, good evening, Gus. Good evening to all the callers. Uh, can I be heard clearly? Uh, yes, sir. Okay. Um, and everything that the lady just said was right on point. And um, even down to, um, you know, I'm starting to see the light at the end of the railroad, you know, or the, the tunnel, because I always say, I don't see no end to this. And you always say, you know, uh, they wouldn't do it if they <laughs> if they didn't think that it could be stopped. And I'm starting to really see that they really think it could be stopped if they're going in. And um, I'm glad she said that. Everything she said was on point. Um, I had a few comments to make. One is, um, man, so much time and energy making a list where my list just put them all on one side. <laughs> I didn't have to go through all of that. Um, was her husband white, Gus? No, no, no. Clarence Page is a uh, black uh, black male. 
Oh, uh, he she did. Okay, he didn't. His some of the words he used was very. But I would say white. You know, I'm, I know it's no way to say, but you know, um, you know. At first, I would say, man. After reading the last book, um, I find it hard to hear that black person killed themselves. I mean, to walk barefoot over the Blue Ridge Mountains and to work barefoot in the snow and to be raped and whipped daily and not commit suicide and for someone to deal with you know, what we deal with today or even in the 80s and commit suicide, I just, I don't know the, the circumstances behind her death. Is there any way that this could have been not a suicide? Maybe someone killed her? Uh, her husband uh, reported that she had uh, more than one uh, suicide attempt. Uh, it seems like she did have some gotcha. very severe uh, mental health problems. Got you, got you. Okay. Um, okay, well, um, a black state in America, man, whoo. Could you imagine the amount of lead in the water <laughs> and the crack on the corners that state would have? Man, guns everywhere, man-made disease. I, I'm just so glad they didn't do that. Um, man, um, she talked about Reagan, um, the worst president ever, in my opinion. And um, second is Clinton, but Reagan. Um, and she could have added, man, that he did the most damage to the Panthers. I mean, my God, what he did in California? She didn't even add that into her editorial or, or the little essay she wrote about it. Um, and, you know, all the drugs that came in under his presidency, she could have added that, too. I mean, um, man, um, listening to the piece, the Chicago made me hate white people. I think, um, I don't man, I, I can't wait for a book to come out to be written, honestly, by a black staff member or a secretary inside of the Obama White House, you know, right after, because, I mean, she would say how the, the secretaries doesn't even talk to each other no more. I mean, I could just imagine. Uh, I just can't wait for that to happen. Um, um, and, um, you know, I think that this section uh, was proof to myself that um, participating and running in the field of politics is um, not good for black people and their mental health either. And, um, you know, we should not be talking about it at work or with white people at all. It should be something we talk about amongst each other. Um, There's just so much stress and energy put behind that election that was unnecessary. You know, um, I, I just feel like, um, you know, that was a big part of, 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 of the problem and what she was writing about it. It was like, man, I mean, this could have all been avoided. I mean, you know, Chicago's no better off either way. It's going to do the same thing. Just look at Chicago now. I mean, it's, um, but I'm mute my line. on. Thank you, Gus. Yes, sir. Other folks who have a hand up? <laughs> uh, was that Karma chiming in or? It, it was. Let the lady go first. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, good evening, guys. Good evening, everyone. I'm really, really, really enjoying this. And no, I haven't quite given up on politics yet, but I'm doing it a little bit differently. So, and um, I have some good news. I have some good news to share tomorrow. But, um, you know, what it, What I really think is she says, how Chicago made me hate white people. And 
you know, when you use that word hate, that's, you know, I could be walking down the street and somebody can go, oh, here comes karma, you know, and who cares? Who cares what he says? I don't even know this guy. I mean, usually when you're all in on a relationship, 100 invested, you've given it, you're given it everything you've got, you've thrown everything else to the side for that relationship, and then that person, <laughs> that person absolutely just trashes you. I mean, I'm not nearly as committed to you as you are to me. So I'm thinking that is the root of her hate. She had an, ex- an exceptional love for white people. I mean, it was just, she, she didn't get to wean herself off of white people. What they did was, you know, they snatched themselves away from her, and that incredible love that she had for them turned to an incredible hate. Whereas, you know, I'm a proponent of malignant neglect. It's like you just, you just less and less and less until you sort of forget about them a little bit. But she just, I mean, she was just taking off her white people drug, and it it, that's what it looks like. It looks like hate. And I think that she never, she never, uh, she was never able to actually wean herself off of white people. So that's why, you know, that's why her depression took hold of her. She never stopped loving them. She never, ever stopped loving them. And she died of unrequited love. So, uh, was that a metaphor? I, I didn't mean for that to be a metaphor. But, um, anyway, that's, that's how I, uh, that's how I interpreted it. So, thanks. Can I be heard? <clears throat> yes, sir. Yes, uh, this this is my uh, first reading section of of, the, of this book, uh, and uh, I, I missed it uh, last last Friday. But what what I gather, because I have been around in my personal experience of a lot of people like the person that we were reading about. And uh, I can see the inevitable happening to her because, you know, as you're growing up, uh, ambitious, uh, smart, it seems like, this person that that, uh, the book is about. And uh, I don't know if she came up with whites, but when ever she did encounter, start encountering, uh, had this almost dreamy like uh, uh, thought pattern of them of of stating well trust until proven otherwise type of uh, thought pattern. And in our case as non white black people, if you don't have uh in the in the frame, uh, an understanding of racism, what it is and how it works. There's a tremendous fall when you really, honestly look at people who call themselves white. And I can see I can see in her situation that it would it would just turn to outright anger. Internally, I mean, the person may not, of course, go out and, and go killing people literally, although that is possible of, of happening. But definitely from the standpoint, it would change their their inner workings. It, it would even go beyond something that would be unhealthy for that that non-white person. 
especially if they don't have the understanding of attempting to practice counter racism. That 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 is really if the if the uh, uh, healthy uh, alternative, if you will, uh, once you come, you know, straight up uh, understanding of wow, there is a system of racist white supremacy, and I can't trust white people. You know that sort of thing. Do you then more than likely it will probably motivate you to get to work. Uh, and I was in Chicago visiting at the time when this actually was going on with the elections with uh, uh, the Honorable uh, 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 what's the mayor? The Honorable Harold Washington, and I, I, I sense I, I wasn't I wasn't uh, as unconfused as I think I am now, but I can I, I sense the, the 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 high level of of excitement out of black people because primarily that's who I was around. I was on the south side uh, for about four or five days, and they tried to make me stay. Uh, for the 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 uh, the final the final uh, on the on the actual voting itself, and I, I had to had to come back down to South Florida. Uh, but uh, I said it to say it, it's, it's I still understand that we have such a narrow we've been rendered anyway uh, such a narrow understanding of politics. Uh, I mean, uh, politics is relations between people, and the main, the main political uh, structure we need to be thinking about is the destruction of the system of racism and supremacy and replacing it with the system of justice. And I have yet to see counter racism on the ballot of anybody's uh, voting voting uh, process. So that really doesn't. I mean, although I do, you know, vote on some occasions. But I, it, it's only to to on on much more. It's not so much about the people, so to speak, on what I'm voting on. And I hope everybody understands what I'm saying. Where I, where I said the counter racism ain't on the ballot. I ain't seen that yet. That's you know, as far as that concerned. But uh, anyway, those those are my thoughts on the, on this on this first half of the reading. Thank you. For sure, for sure. Anybody who uh, had a hand up who has not commented, uh, or if you want to share, you should press star six to get your hand up, and we'll get you in as well. Anybody that we missed? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, greetings to you guys and callers. Um, yeah, this is an interesting section. I just, I, something just came to me as the firefighter in Florida was speaking um, when he talked about uh, her suicide, and it made me think about something. Um, when she talked about shooting every white person that she saw it immediately made me think of Colin Ferguson and the fact that she committed suicide also made me think that for, and it also made me have an even better understanding of why Neely Fuller says in his book, um, in the code, if you go to the extreme of, um, maximum emergency compensatory justice in which you are taking out the white supremacists that have pushed you to that limit, that you should also kill yourself. And the reason why is because you can't kill enough white people to kill racism, white supremacy. So even if you go that far and you enact that maximum compensatory justice, um, you're still going to have to contend with all the other white supremacists that they're going to send to you, send after you because of you killing the original white supremacists that pushed you over the edge in the first place. 
So the only logical thing for a person who has had it is to kill themselves. And when you, when you look at what she's talking about throughout this reading in the book, it brings home that the beauty of counter racist codification is that it simplifies everything. The, I see that from what she's writing, the complexity that caused her, that pushed her over the edge was the complexity of these relationships with these white people and then the anti-blackness that she was receiving because of, the black, because of her quote-unquote success amongst the white world or within the white world, but then at the same time, the anti-blackness she was receiving because the people around her were no less terrorized than victims of white supremacy as well. And she seemed to be, when she talks about the sexual, she talks about being a two-headed, two-hearted monster, I immediately thought of like a schizophrenic mind state because she's trying so hard to, to um, understand white people and why they're doing the things that they're doing, even though these are supposed to be her quote-unquote friends. And when you look at counter-racist codification and you look at all white people as racist suspects at minimum, for me, they're all racist white supremacists. Um, it's only in certain conversations I might use that particular term racist suspect. In my mind, every single one of them are racist white supremacists, bar none, babe, newborn baby to elderly grandmother, doesn't matter to me. They're all racist. But when you don't have that understanding, when you look at how white people perceive black people and how we're projected, we are all painted with the same brush of being the worst thing that God, God ever created. So everywhere we go, white people know to look at any one of us, no matter how nice we are, no matter how intelligent we are, whatever it is, we are all niggas to them. And if we start looking at them through the same lens, that same understanding, every single one of those people you encounter are racist white supremacists. It simplifies things. You know it's exactly who the enemy is. You're putting any frustration, any anger towards the direction that it needs to go. Because I remember, Gus, you always talk about, um, you know, the, the inaccuracy of the aim of black people who sometimes try to counter racism, we, we start to exhibit traits of race towards other black people. And eventually the gun will go from pointing at the white person to pointing at another black person. And that's a, a brilliant analogy that you've utilized before. I, I know I'm paraphrasing it, but it really speaks to the fact that, you know, white supremacy is designed to create mental illness within black people. And sometimes the extreme of which manifestation will come in the form of these suicidal thoughts and the types of things that push Mrs. McLean over the edge. And um, there was a, let me see. Oh, yeah, there's right here. I equated that section where she talked about being a two-headed monster with um, a section on page 37 where she says, Bitter am I. That is mild. The affair has cemented my journalist quiet cynicism, robbing me of most of my innate black hope for true, for true integration, excuse me. It has made me sparkle as I reveled in the comradeship of blackness. It has banished me to nightmarish bouts of sullenness. It has made me weld on a mask, censor every word, rethink every thought. It has put a face on the evil that no one wants to acknowledge is within them. It has made me mistrust people, white and black. This battle has made me hate and that hate does not discriminate. Right there, I'm seeing that two-headed monster is between hating the black people who she feels are mistreating her and then hating the white people who she doesn't know who to trust because she's working with these people like um, the, the other um, black female was saying. She went through a list of all her white friends and essentially was finding something mistrustful about every one of them, no matter what kind of traits they exhibited to her. 
And um, I think that, that walking that tightrope of trying to sift out the good whites from the so-called uh, non-racist white supremacist whites, which there are none, is what was causing that mental illness. Like I believe it was Karma who was, was talking about that. It was like an unrequited love because she was trying to figure them out. And she couldn't exactly figure out the fact that they are all racist, no matter how so-called liberal they are or whatever other label you want to put on them. Every single one of them, once you say you're on the white team, you are of the understanding that you are of a global minority of people who, if you mix with other races of people that are non-white, they will wipe out white people. So as soon as you say I'm white, you understand that I am a racist white supremacist on the team of white supremacy at all times, and I'm going to do anything by any means necessary to perpetuate racism, white supremacy. The last thing I wanted to touch on was a section right at the end of the reading on page 42. She said, it will be black self-help that will save, that will have to save the underclass to educate and call for an end to rampant teenage pregnancy, to offer reforms in welfare that will allow fathers to stay in the home, to decrease criminal recidivism, to demand better schools and community services. It will take, for example, the efforts of an Edward Gardner, the Southside black hair care manufacturer who has begun a black-on-black -black love campaign to combat black-on-black -black crime. It will take electing responsive politicians, be they white or black. This section kind of reminds me of a lot of what Dr. Wilson talked about. She's really talking about black self-respect. A lot of this is all the things that Dr. Wilson has talked about. May God lift her soul up to the, the utmost. Um, she was just so brilliant. And, and, and um, you can tell that Mrs. McLean was really, she was seeking an understanding that she was never able to find. And somewhere in her, the truth was there. It keeps coming out and it keeps showing itself in her mistrust for the white people. And she goes back to trying to make friends with the white people again. Then with this, just that one section really speaks to black self-respect. She, like, she didn't have the proper verbiage to really say some of the things she wanted to say, but she said it eloquently enough because she was so brilliant that you can draw those truths out of it. And it's really a shame that she took her life at such a young age. Thank you for taking my call. For sure, for sure. Uh, if other folks have commentary, uh, just press star six. Uh, we'll get you on the line. Just try again not to uh, wait until we get to the top of the hour when we get ready for the second audio uh, segment. Uh, let's see, quick comments uh, that I wanted to get in, and then we should have time if other people have second comments that they want to add. Since this book is uh, focused a lot on Chicago, it is uh, fascinating that happening like right now, I think right at the time that we went live, uh, Donald Trump was supposed to be speaking in Chicago today, and they ended up calling off the rally because they had uh, violent outbreaks between his supporters uh, and protesters like that's been reported widely uh, all over the news. I think Don Lemon was supposed to be uh, questioning him or I think he talked Don Lemon spoke with him over the phone uh, at CNN. But that's like happening right now uh, in the Windy City. Um, also, since it was mentioned, uh, a sizable number of slaves, enslaved black people uh, did commit suicide uh, under those circumstances and even uh, what they call infanticide, where they are killing their offspring uh, because they do not want them to be subjected to the horrors uh, of slavery. Uh, there's a lot of uh, research on that. And even uh, even on the uh, slave ships, uh, whites, racists codified the slave ships to prevent suicide so that black people could not just jump overboard uh, and drown themselves to avoid all the horrors that went along with that. They had netting and, and all of that. There's a lot of detailed research on that as well. Uh, some of the things that 
uh, stood out from the book. I think her husband, Clarence Page, at the interview that I played at the beginning, I uh, said her depression uh, came from her black. I, actually, the white person from C-SPAN who was questioning Mr. Page asked, you know, how much of her depression came from her blackness. That is totally incorrect. Dr. Cambon uh, recommends that we say it correctly every time. Uh, and if someone needs to be corrected, do so. Her depression did not come from her quote unquote blackness. Her depression came from whites practicing racism. That was the source of the problem. And we should make sure to make because it consistently shifted the attention, the focus, the blame gets shifted to black people. And we should work against that. Uh, the book, the first essay that we started off with, Herman Gilbert, the negotiations uh, sounded a tad interesting, something that I might check out uh, down the road. I don't read a lot of fiction. Uh, agreed with the commentary uh, that was presented. You obviously cannot, quote unquote, separate uh, from racism, white supremacy. I think uh, racists have done a good job confounding our understanding uh, to get us to think uh, that we can somehow just uh, get greater dif distance uh, from racists and that will solve the problem. Uh, it is simply not possible. Um, I thought it was interesting the How Chicago Taught Me to Hate Whites. Uh, number one, it seems that Leonita McLean did not title this essay How Chicago Taught Me to Hate Whites. Because uh, I think from uh, Mr. Page's introduction uh, that she uh, was not as pleased with that title or what have you. Uh, I know that's kind of common uh, where people will put that sort of, uh, will change the title, that sort of thing. Um, around. I know that from my own experience, but uh, I thought that was interesting. Um, also, she comments or he comments both in the introduction and then she comments in the actual piece. Uh, and it's been brought up repeatedly the first two weeks that we've been doing this reading, uh, how much hurt and pain she experienced from other black people, other black people questioning her blackness, uh, other black people uh, being, I guess, envious uh, of her quote unquote success uh, and even her own maybe internal feelings of guilt being around and seeing in Chicago as so many black people who are suffering in, in misery. That's been the case for eons uh, seeing it and, and her being uh, in a quote unquote gentrified neighborhood around white people and having a better job, her having some, some feelings of guilt uh, around all of that. It seemed like that was a big part of her discomfort uh, and it seemed like it, it just really, really bothered her. And that I think is it, it's hugely important to understand. It doesn't matter how many nickels that you have in a system of racism, white supremacy. Whites can select any non-white person and give them whatever, a few trinkets, allow them to go to school, get a great job, even hang out in the White House for a couple of terms if they so choose. They can also take that away extremely fast, regardless of who that non-white person happens to be and they have shown this over and over and over you can look at uh jesse jackson jr uh is tons of black people i think oj simpson pick anybody uh they can do that whenever they feel like it and seem to be able to do that incredibly efficiently uh, i think that's extremely important to keep in mind uh, particularly because i think a lot of us end up uh getting in that position where again we're focused on other black people and how other black people are responding to us. Also that anti-blackness. I also think it's important too. black people squabbling, bickering, fault finding with other black people that happens regardless whether you are quote unquote successful or whether you are in the exact same position as the other black people. That just is a part of what racists have done in their conditioning and victimization 
uh, of non-white people victims of racism where we just spend a lot of time uh, focused in fault-finding with each other and not paying attention to the folks who are most to blame, whites. Uh, where she mentioned, this is even in the introduction where they mention John Madigan, this white guy who does five commentaries. I think he said he starts out, he did three commentaries in the first five days when the article came out did one more later on and then did another one after she died. Uh, that is, I mean, when we talk about uh, dedication to racism, white supremacy, uh, when we talk about tackiness all the way through this, Leonita McLean has committed suicide and this guy, John Madigan, I have to take this time in her death to go back and talk about this nasty, no good article that she wrote and continue to besmirch the name of Leonita McLean. I mean, wow, that is another brilliant illustration uh, of whites. And I would just say for the record, anytime where you write something and you upset white people, really anything that you do, if you write something, you say something, any project that you do, and it angers white people in this way, you are stumbling, fumbling in the correct direction about what we should be doing as victims of racism. So outstanding effort. That's a great sign right there. And another illustration that we should not be hopeless because this problem can be solved. White people would not respond in that way if we were just hopeless niggers they wouldn't care it would just be oh this little nigger wrote, wrote uh this you know interesting little piece ha 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 would just you know go about our business practicing white terrorism that's not how they respond five boxes i think crates of letters that they sent in to complain and gripe and rant and rave uh continuing i thought it was interesting in the actual body of the piece uh where it was mentioned because it came up before about intermarrying uh that she had thought uh, that maybe intermarrying or quote-unquote integration, that that would solve this problem. I think those are common fallacies that we are led to believe. They get repeated all the time. It just shows the level of confusion. When Mr. Fuller, he starts both of his books saying, if you don't understand racism, white supremacy, what it is, how it works, everything else will only confuse you. I mean, it, 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 could, be, it could be said after every paragraph in this, in this book, I feel, and, and that would be the case, I think, for all of us as confused victims of racism. Uh, the White Friends, uh, I think you all had some great commentary, Karma, uh, Thomas in New York. Uh, I can speak from personal experience as I started to get a better understanding of white supremacy, what it means to be white. I only had one white friend and it was devastating when it was like, oh, no, oh, when she gives her list of all her white friends, I only had one on my list and it was devastating. Like, oh, no, I thought I had a good one. I thought she was down. I thought she was cool. I thought her cousin or her husband, her white husband, I thought he was cool, too. They talked about racism. They had medical apartheid. They were the ones that told me to read medical apartheid. And, you know, we would talk about it. I thought they were down. They said the right thing. And no. Even you, racist, white supremacist, and it, it just the emotional connection there, it is devastating. That's why I said at that time, I remember uh, the day vividly saying, I will never again have another quote unquote white friend. It just, it sounds horrible. Even putting them together, tragic, I think as a uh, caller in Michigan, our narrator uh, said, but I mean, I, I, if you have not had close white friends and went through that process of breaching those relationships, I think it's hard to overstate uh, when you're confused about racism and you have such a value uh, on being, as Thomas in New York says, being validated by whites, you have those intense attachments, uh, you're white identified, and then recognizing that, oh man, 
this person too. Uh, it is extremely difficult. It's very emotional just to be scientific, logical about all this. It's not about us being friends. It's not about us being sexually involved. It's just about solving this problem. Uh, that is the best way that we want to go. And whites do everything that they can to push us away from doing that. Uh, page 34. There were so many things that I had uh, marked in here. Um, Let's see. Yeah, I thought it was important when they mentioned uh, the white people. They went to a lot of their standard tactics and saying that they hoped uh, that some of the white employees who endorsed Harold Washington, that their daughters would be uh, raped and savaged uh, by black baboons. Uh, standard operating procedure in terms of how whites operate. Um, let's see. On page 34, it said whites could not find enough other things to talk about if they talked at all. Not just the most bigoted of bigots should be racist, but all whites this is what i mean the clarity it seemed like she started to have some level of clarity that man even the white people that i thought were not racist i'm even having some suspicions about them uh and it just seemed like a lot for her to process she goes on she says even the more open-minded of my fellow journalists even the standard niceties took on a different quality their good mornings had the tenor of death rattles not just the usual pre-coffee hoarseness the detail just extraordinary writing and uh, i'm just of the opinion she seemed like a very sensitive person very attentive to detail and noticing how drastically uh the conduct of the whites that were around her white people that she thought were cool not racist how drastically it changed once this black person harold washington was elected mayor uh of chicago and i think you seeing some of that right now over the past eight years with president obama and even with uh the whole donald trump phenomenon um let's see i thought super important uh where she says this is at the bottom of 34 going to 35 it is the evil that led blacks to caucus and revert to the old days of talking about whitey it is the evil of protesters their faces red hot with hate at a catholic church where former vice president walter mondale and washington were jeered the religion of white supremacy them organizing in a church to do this and i also think is equally important where it's again it's that presentation that everybody is evil everybody is racist black people and white people white uh, black people went back to our racist ways of talking about whitey and whites did the same thing where that is just not equivalent again if you are confused about racism it just distorts everything uh, and i think this is very common as well for people to present racism white supremacy as though uh all of us are to blame in this we're all racist we're all perpetuating racism and nothing could be further from the truth uh the portion where she says this is at the bottom of 35 uh, man mr demry read it i'm just rereading this sentence because it is so profound i could say it every program uh, and it's where they reprinted some of the letters that whites wrote. And I am going whenever I get access to the Chicago Tribune archives. I would love to see this and put it on the blog. We should check it out to see what they wrote because they said it took up like eight pages. Uh, but where they printed all the, the nasty letters that came in, nigger lovers and lies when the Chicago Tribune endorsed Harold Washington, where she says that is what is wrong with this town. Being a racist is as respectable and expected as going to church the religion of white supremacy and if it's expected that sounds like whites cannot be ignorant about racism if there are expectations that you're supposed to be doing this uh the next page uh again she just she spends so much time talking about 
white friendships, where she says, I dissected why some people had cultivated my friendships, why I was so quick to offer it unconditionally, straining as hard as they could to prove a point, to say, see how easy it is if we all just smile and pretend. Uh, I thought that was really important uh, because it seems like even even acknowledging that there is something insincere uh, about all of these tragic situations where we're pretending we're lying. I think Mr. Fuller calls that the tackiness of it all. Uh, we're trying to pretend that we're getting along and we're all in this together and we're not being mistreated. We non-white people, we're not being mistreated, uh, trying to have these quote unquote friendships uh, with whites. And it just seems like there was so much pain uh, about this for her. Uh, she goes on, she says, uh, now I'm solving the racial problem. Now I know solving the racial problem will take more than living, marrying, going to school together and all those other laudable but naive goals I defended. This episode even made these first steps so far from reach. It just seems like there is a tremendous amount of pain uh, with getting this information about whites, all whites. And I, that is very, very common. And I would say, say that this has been a representative of non-white people on the whole in my experience, uh, even coming down to non-white people saying, well, man, I thought Susie was cool. I thought Ted was cool. And I thought we just needed to spend time together. I think one of our uh, callers says all the time, if we just got to know each other, this would all work. No, all of that is just ra uh, racist rhetoric to confound the truth of the matter. Uh, when everyone was suspect, she says that I underlined that, uh, highlighted it big time. Uh, let's see anything else quickly. I want to get in before I nab some of the other folks who dialed in with a hand up uh, the part where they put the letters in the paper in the hopes that it would shame whites. I think that's extremely important as well, because that is a common misnomer that there is such a thing as white guilt <laughs> that white people can be made to feel bad about terrorizing black people. Nothing is further from the truth. I thought she did a great job of clearly articulating the fallacy of that where whites saw these articles and were proud. It was great. I can congratulate other whites on this. A great article. Great. I saw what you wrote and then you got those nigga love great job where they didn't feel bad at all. It was right on. This is what we're supposed to do. And that plays out exactly 2016. I would say you can look at exactly what's happening uh, with Donald Trump where they're, you know, going to these rallies and assaulting black people. They're not ashamed. They don't feel bad uh, about any of this. This is what I'm supposed to do. These are my duties duties as a white woman, white man, race soldier. Uh, it continues. Let's see the same thing where she comes back a little while later, right at the end of the piece, uh, where she's talked about all this, where she's not giving her. Oh man, I'll just read it. She says, I have resumed lunching with some of the white colleagues where she got pulled back in. And that's something that I've noticed as well. When it's just on emotion, when it's not on just logic, the science of racism. What does it mean to be white? This is not I'm upset because an acute event happened. I'm angered about Sandra Bland or any other specific event. No, just understanding scientifically, logically what racism is, how it works and making decisions about how I think, speak, act and my emotions based on logic. When it's emotions, it's hard to stay angry for a long time. Everybody. I mean, I think most of us have experienced that you can be angry about something and after some time passes, you just don't have the same level of intensity. And that I mean, woo, with whites, you cannot bank on non-white people who are confused about the logic of racism. You cannot bank on their 
anger, their rage with whites lasting and promoting consistent logical behavior with how they deal with whites. And you can see it receding by the time she gets to the end of the article. I have resumed lunching with some of the white colleagues. I avoided for weeks, though the conversation will stay forever circumscribed. Some have fallen away. Failures of my litmus test. New ones have been found, but no white will ever be trusted so readily again with the innermost me. It is difficult to have the same confidence in my judgment about whites that I used to have. It is difficult to say friend. Is that saying I have become a bigot again? (laughs) This assessment as though black people are are racist if we come to a position that we hate whites or dislike whites or don't want to be their friends. Very, very common. I have been accused of that myself. I'm sure others have as well. Big part of not understanding racism, white supremacy, thinking that all of us are racist, particularly black people, for how we respond to being terrorized by whites. Um, The jelly maker, I think someone comments regularly about Metaphors that are confusing and not clear. I did not understand that either. Uh, it was not. Uh, it was not clearly explained. One quick thing I wanted to get in, and then I'll get some of the other people who have a hand up uh, who haven't shared yet. The bottom of thirty-nine. Uh, this essay, where she's talking about Jesse Jackson and his run for president, uh, where she says. Uh, Jesse, where she says, uh, don't look for an endorsement here. Captivating, stirring, brilliant he can be, but his zero experience in public office is a big question mark. And while Jackson has a significant place in the civil rights struggle, his aura is still of the streets, not the Oval Office. I thought that was profound because it still gives this veneer as though whites are qualified, whatever streets means, another metaphor. Uh, But it gives this suggestion that Whites are not streets, whatever that means, that whites are qualified and competent to be in Oval Office to make these serious decisions. And folks reference the last book. I remember Andrew Jackson when they talked about his inauguration where you had all these rowdy, drunken thugs uh, where they were so intoxicated that Andrew Jackson had to crawl out of the window to escape if memory serves correctly. Not to mention that a lot of the folks that sat in the Oval Office were slave owners that, you know, we just set that to the side. But I think a lot of these folks have exhibited uh, what could be termed street behavior, uh, whether we want to talk about uh, Slick Willie or any of the other whites uh, who have been in office. Uh, That just stuck out as profound to me. I just think that's another aspect of our victimization uh, in this system. I will pause there. I could say a lot more about uh, many of the things we heard, but I'll nab some of the folks who dialed in with a hand up. Uh, The person at 9039, uh, did you have a comment? And there's a person at the vote vote line. Either of you, did you all have comments? Can I be heard? Uh, yes, sir. Your volume is a little uh, low, so if you could speak up. Is that better? Uh, give us another couple of sentences. Couple sentences. <clears throat> How y'all doing today? Okay, that is okay. That is that is a little bit better. If you that is a little bit better. If you speak up, I just speak up. Yeah, I just make sure I keep the volume high on my uh, on, when I'm talking. Um, I just, I, I, I listened and I, and I heard what she was saying and everything is dead on. I just, I, I want, I want to say first that it's a tragedy that the sister, you know, that it went to that, that, that extreme and that she took her life. But, you know, I, I understand, of course, all of us that are conscious understand exactly what she was saying and what was going on. And I just want to really just say real quick about, quick about the, uh, when you were talking about them uh, about white guilt, 
about you know let's put it put put our pieces in the paper you know and see if we can elicit some uh, white guilt and just as you said you know nothing can be further from the truth it's it's I don't know if it's a, a genetic thing I don't know exactly what it is but in my eyes they never feel, hardly ever feel guilt ever the 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 they they it's almost like they play against you. You talk to one and you think, you know, okay, well, you know, it, it might be some light at the end of the tunnel. It might You might find one good one. And boom, you bump it to the next one and it's like uh, they show you their real selves. They show you the, the, the racism. And even that in itself is, is, is kind of quagmire. It, 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 it takes your mind to another place like, where can I go? I'm stuck on this planet with, with, with a system that I, I, I understand now. And the people that are in it, they're constantly playing me back and forth against myself while I'm struggling, while I'm, I'm going through all these things. So I just want to call in and say, it, 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 talk about that and just say, I, I wish the sister, I wish, you know, we could have got to her, somebody could have got to her before this tragic step was taken. But I just, I, I, I just want to speak on that and I'll meet my line. For sure. Definitely appreciate that caller. Uh, the person from the vote line, did you have commentary that you wanted to get in? Uh, we had somebody else from a block number as well. Did either of you two uh, want to comment? Can I be heard? Uh, your volume is a little low. If you could speak up, please. Uh, can you hear me better now? That is better. Yes, ma'am. Okay. I just wanted to say that it's interesting that um, she talks about how the White people acted um, when Harold Washington went into office because uh, I remember when 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 OJ got off. I remember reading in magazines and stuff. A lot of black people were saying the same thing about their coworkers uh, about how they would come to work and and how they were treating them badly and everything. And at that time, I was working, but it didn't bother me because I always kept to myself anyway. So it was. I mean, if they acted differently toward me, I didn't. I I I had no idea because because they always acted the same toward me anyway. And that's all I wanted to say. All right, on, right on. Uh, the person from the vote line, did you have commentary? Uh, call of the dial then on the vote line. Did you have commentary, or are you just listening? It looks like your line is open. No, I'm just listening. Oh, right on, right on. Uh, just quickly, and then other folks, I think we got everybody who had a hand up. If other folks have commentary, um, we can get second uh, thoughts in. I just wanted to, number one, when President Obama, when he won in 2008, uh, in, he was in Chicago, if folks remember, the night that he won, he gave a speech and what have you. There was a case where Chicago's finest, where they pepper sprayed a black family and were using uh, racist commentary called them niggers and what have you because they were upset about president obama winning this happened in chicago uh 2008 i think there was uh, a suit uh that went down uh, about this and i think there were more there was more than one incident of this happening in chicago specifically uh the night before one and, and chicago, uh, president obama being there uh but mad mob was standing uh folks have other comments they want to get in i did want to ask to our narrator uh any thoughts uh on reading that piece specifically the uh how chicago taught me to hate whites because i think that's that's such a an important piece people still talk about it it's been more than 25 years since it was written uh any any thoughts on on reading that piece may i be heard 
Yes, ma'am. Well, um, honestly, it took me a while to finish reading this piece. I related so much with what um, just her experience um, and just workplace racism, just just understanding the um, the tragic arrangement of being in close proximity of white people uh, and, and just I mean, it was just her her piece was just so passionate. And I I struggled. I really did. I struggled. It took me um, a little time just to, because I just kept rereading it. So this book um, and just her experience is um, is interesting um, because I, I just I just appreciate uh, her ex husband for for um, you know going through and and doing whatever he had to do to get this published and 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 us having the ability to to read it and dissect it because again it just kind of shares um you know just just sheds light on her experience um like one of the callers said it's just so unfortunate that um she took her life um and it just kind of just really just really shows how much suffering black people um, suffer under this system. So um, I just say, you know, just reading it. And as I continue to read, um, it's just, I, I just feel some kind of connection with just some of the, the ups and downs that she's been experiencing. Um, and I'm just, you know, I, I just uh, got fired from uh, a job working with white people and everything that she was um, just kind of like explaining, I saw just so many dynamics in that law firm and I kind of just like, oh, I'm just so glad. Like right now I am nowhere in contact with white people right now. And so it just makes me hesitant with just my, you know, trying to apply for jobs or just look for other opportunities because of this. And I'm like, <laughs> wow, it's, um, you know, and then you struggle with, okay, well, I got to make a living. I got to take care of, you know, all the things, you know, you have your education, you're trying to quote unquote be successful, but you know, I'm reading this, like, I don't want to be anywhere near white people. It's just, it's, it's, it's insane. So that's all I wanted to, um, contribute on that, on that question. I have an answer to the trees. Um, the question, the, the thing that I really hated the most when I was growing up to hear my mother at the end of the conversation say, I'll send the girls. That meant we were going to someone's property to go to the most remote area of their property, pick plums, pick peaches, climb trees, go over thickets, get berries, shake the tree for figs. You, the most robust person in the family, goes to get the fruit, and then you bring it home to the more sedentary people like your mom and your grandmother, and they'll make the preserves and the jelly. Does does, that make sense for your metaphor? How does that relate, like, politically, though, (laughs) to, okay, politically? Oh, the person who can really shake things up, the person who can really get the energy flowing, that's the person who claws in there and gets all the fruit. The person who can just bring home the bacon and cook the food, that's the the more sedate, accepted person in the family, the more senior person. I don't know. To me, it makes sense. The kids go get the food and the parents make the jelly. It doesn't make sense to you, though. Okay. Well, just Sorry. the political. I, I just can't explain it. 
Not not polit. I mean, it's no apology. It's just in terms of politically, if we're saying uh, is Jesse Jackson is he a jelly maker? What what does that mean politically in terms of okay, he's quote unquote sedate and he's making like how does that translate into what you would do in terms of politically and specifically him being president? I don't. <laughs> well, to me, it's like I will shake everybody up. I will shake. I will shake up the populace. I will get people up. I will get them roused up to vote and that uh, you can bring home the bacon. I mean, you can, you can bring home the goodies for the community. We'll get some white guy in there who can make a deal and we'll get some jobs and some schools and things like that. But I will get these black people out to vote. I, I will stir up the community. That, that doesn't, I guess I'm, I'm not explaining it well, so I, I will just give up. Thank you. It, there, there's, there's two thoughts that I, that I have on, on the subject you're talking about right now you probably have to be a certain age in order to understand the practical uh, examples of, of the, the jelly making and, and whatever to be able to transfer that into as what Gus is asking, the political, how, how does that relate to the uh, uh, politics uh, as far as they're concerned. I think you have to have that, that, that the cultural experience of, you know, instead of going to the store to get jelly, uh, what it takes to actually go get it before that process was done. The only, only way I know about it is because uh, my, my mother and some of her siblings were still doing that as far as getting, you know, things them, themselves instead of going to the grocery store to get it. And it takes, you know, some different types of attitudes or, or uh, patience or, or whatever. And from there, if you have some sort of interest or, or, or thought process on, on this, what I call, and I'm still going to say this narrow understanding of politics, which is simply like voting or, or who to vote for, or even the candidates themselves, then, then you, could I guess can relate between the two, you know? But uh, that's my attempt, anyway. Can I ask a question? Yes, ma'am. I wanted to ask a question. So, just with this, um, I mean, I'm thinking like now with politics, like who would be considered the tree shaker? Would that be like Donald Trump? Like, and who's the jelly maker? I'm just. I just really don't understand the analogy. I know she said, like, on page 40, she kind of put um, that the tree shaker is like the agitator. So, I mean, I look at that as like Donald Trump. But I just was um, confused. And, it, and again, that's it, it really makes sense when you say no metaphors because I didn't really get that. But um, when I look at today in politics, who's the tree shaker and who would be considered the jelly maker? So. Um, um, I think today the tree shaker is um, Donald Trump, and he's trying to become the jelly maker. He's trying to um, bring the Republican Party together. He keeps talking about unifying. He's trying to make it stick like jelly, I think. Um, jelly sticky, and it's a lot of things mixed in together. It's bringing people together. And I think um, he's trying to change his mold. As you saw the debate last night, he was very subdued. He wasn't calling people names. He was very pleasant to the other competitors. 
and he kept talking about unifying the party, and they've been um, saying that that was the problem with him the whole time. Mm. Fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> Fascinating. You know, more... We got about more, 60 more seconds. So than, 60 seconds. Uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, if you can do it in 60 seconds. Yeah, I'm about to say more so than any substance between all all of these people who are quote unquote candidates. The only, the only thing only thing I see is marketing. I mean, the only thing I observe through through vision as well as hearing is if they're just marketing themselves, and 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 he probably seems to be doing uh, himself and uh, uh, Mrs. Clinton. Uh, doing the best at it uh, as uh, getting the attention of the majority of people, uh, and I don't, I don't see, I don't see that really significantly changing uh, because the system of racism, white supremacy, first of all, its power is not based on uh, uh, any elected official. So therefore, that, that right there alone should tell us that 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 uh, any real taking us some time to have an interest into this subject is not going to solve our problem either. You know, and, you know, but that's, that's basically just a thought that I have on that. Thank you. For sure. We will get to the second audio segment. If folks have other comments that they want to get in on the first audio segment, we should have ample time. Uh, once this concludes, uh, we are picking up uh, beautiful is black in Miss America, which uh, mm. <laughs> just uh, get to it. If folks didn't get to share again, just write it, write your commentary down and we'll have time to get you uh, once the second audio segment ends. Context of white supremacy, Leonina McLean, a foot in each world. September 21st, 1983. Beautiful is black in Miss America. This has been a watershed year for first blacks. Harold Washington was elected the first black mayor of Chicago. Lieutenant Colonel Guyon S. Bluford was the first black astronaut in space. And now the first black Miss America is, has been crowned. Vanessa Williams, 20, of Millwood, New York. Why is the first black anything still significant? Because the progress of blacks since the 1960s has been nothing short of earth-shaking. Because so much has been done in so little time to reverse centuries of inequity. All it took was for opportunities finally to open, though many are still flowering. Most important, blacks are grasping those opportunities as they always knew they could. That should not be lost on Miss America as she protests too much about the attention paid her race. Her crowning is historic because it has taken 62 years and it is made all the more fascinating because the first runner-up, Miss New Jersey, Suzette Charles, also is black. Miss America represents the nation's highest standards of beauty. It is surely a new day when a black woman is an ideal for little white girls to emulate. But Williams is miffed. At times I get annoyed because people and the press aren't focusing on me as a person and are focusing on my being black, she said. That 
unfortunately, comes with the first black territory. What Williams should keep in mind is that she, like other firsts, achieve what they do for the most part by not being overly black. That has nothing to do with skin coloration. The subject of a minor and stupid debate over Williams' light complexion that one hopes will quickly dissipate in the black community. Rather, it has to do with meeting colorless standards and qualifications that any individual would have to meet. That was the message of civil rights. Give blacks a fair, equal chance and they will advance. Williams provided it stunningly. The traits that swayed the judges radiated from Williams the individual, not Williams the black curiosity. But however gorgeous, dynamic, and delightful she may be, she also is black. Though her other gifts were acquired, that last is a natural and a gift as well. If she is a strong person and her statements indicate she is, she will not be co-opted into becoming a spokesperson for black causes. An individual's personality can ensure that the color of that person is not turned into a symbol, as even Williams recognizes. I don't think I'm going to be torn. Just because I'm black doesn't mean I'm going to support every black position. It is not every black's lot in life to be upfront about color, to be the protester or agitator. There will be those in the black community chiding Williams' lack of identity or some such. Williams' victory placed her in a leadership role, but that role does not require her to organize a march or speak out on South Africa. Its demands are different. Civil rights leaders are right to make a fuss over her, but they may be making too much of the blow to racism. It's far from dead. Every first black chips away at it, but it will not be defeated until there are second, third, and even 20th blacks. In other words, until blacks are in all strata of business and social life as a normal everyday occurrence. In American society today, that just isn't so. Would that the day would hurry when being black were coincidental to someone's achievement? Williams is not the first black to be annoyed about being the first black. John Thompson, the spit and polished basketball coach at Georgetown University, shocked everyone with his seemingly ungracious statement in 1982 upon becoming the first black coach to get his team to the NCAA Finals. He said it wasn't so great an honor because to admit as much would be to say there had been no qualified blacks before him, and that would be an insult to other blacks. To use Thompson's analogy, did the naming of Justice Thurgood Marshall as the first black on the Supreme Court in 1967 mean that there had been no worthy black men of jurisprudence before Marshall? No, it meant only that blacks were deemed unworthy, wrongly, and doomed by historical circumstance. 
There are times to be black and there are times not to be black. That is an early and indelible lesson of childhood for most black people. During her reign, Miss America will find the beauty and the beast in that lesson. September 25th, 1983. Beauty brings out the beast. No sooner did I label the debate over the light complexion of Miss America 1984 minor and stupid than it quickly turned major and stupid. The office phone was jingling crazily. Of course they pick her, said one caller referring to the crowning of Vanessa Williams, 20, of Millwood, New York, the first black to win the title Miss America. She's the least black-looking person they could find. Why did they pick someone so fair that they had to ask her if she was half white? One upset caller asked. The comments continued. Picking her was an insult. Whites always set the standards for blacks. So to pick someone like that who is near white subjects us to their standards. Others were incensed that Williams herself did not want to dwell on the racial matter. Some questioned whether she really considered herself black. Even a New York Times television critic noted that with the victories of Williams and first runner-up Miss New Jersey, Suzette Charles, also black, the beauty pageant could chalk up one for diversity, but put something down for homogenization. It is unlikely that many viewers knew for sure, whether the two young women were black or white. Back on the phone, someone else suggested that crowning Williams was an effort to help the Republicans get black votes. It's not inconceivable that this thing was rigged. And the same person suggested they probably picked a black first runner up to keep from insulting the black community just in case the alleged rigging to pick Williams is uncomfort and she is disqualified. Whoa, I'm as intrigued by juicy conspiracy theories as the next person. Two blacks at the top in the same contest is a mite suspicious, but this kind of response is too much. I never expected I would have to write on this subject, certainly not in the form of a newspaper with a predominantly white audience. But I plunge now with both feet into the silly little business of color consciousness, status, and black skin tones. Color variations are joked about uninhibitedly among black people, but any serious discussion of it is whispered, and it is an unmentionable in the company of whites. Even civil rights has not relieved this twisted, parasitic tendency. Miss America is black, light skin, green eyes, and all. And I may as well admit to being of the same persuasion before someone calls to make an issue of it. Though you'll never catch me competing against Williams in a bathing suit. Those people who chose to feel superior or inferior to others of their own race on the basis of skin color ought to spend more time looking over themselves. Whatever happened to the message of black is beautiful, 
to the thinking that blacks were a melting pot all to themselves, to the poetry that celebrated shades from honey to ebony. White society for years set all kinds of literal measures for blackness, one drop of blood, and octoroons who were persons having one-eighth black ancestry, or by a different formula, the children of a quadroon and a white. In a recent Louisiana court case, a woman who looked white and had lived as a white tried unsuccessfully to be declared so legally when she discovered after all of these years that her birth certificate listed her as black. The state law that makes anyone with one thirty-second Negro blood legally black was upheld. The woman was found to be three thirty-seconds black. With all of these definitions, why do blacks waste time with nitpicking, self-effacing refinements? Black people throughout history have taken in the fairest and the darkest of siblings. Of course, there were people who passed, disappeared into white society, but that made them no less black in actuality. And there were social clubs for the light-skinned only in those days when everyone was a Negro and proud of it, and the word black was an insult. That debate isn't over yet either. There will always be people, black and white, with acute cases of color consciousness, individuals concerned about how light or how dark someone's complexion is, how straight or how kinky someone's hair is. But the bottom line is black is black, off-white is black, and so is every color in between. There are too many other substantive issues confronting black people today. Isn't it about time to blend together and move on? October 26, 1983. My defense of an offense. The Reader is a free Chicago weekly that has achieved remarkable success as a C-level successor to Chicago's underground press that was fading out in the early 1970s. Directed at students and young professionals along Chicago's lakefront, it became the nexus of local conflict over its tolerance for anonymous individuals who used its free ads as a forum for racial, ethnic, and religious hatred. The ads became the subject of the following column, which touched off freelance point-of-view, Tribune, columns on both sides of the issue. The reader quietly sees the practice a few months later. I could not have been more offended, yet I cannot be more righteous about defending the laws that allow the offender to express his views. In every issue of The Reader, Chicago's free alternative weekly newspaper, there are ads and the personals that put forth the most venomous, racial, and anti-Semitic and anti-Catholic epithets. They are so objectionable that most cannot be reprinted here. They are usually signed, White Power. Where is Hitler when we need him, one reads. And there is the indiscriminate discrimination of another that begins, I'm sick of Jews and Catholics. Aren't there any Protestant girls in Chicago? 
No need for more. You get the idea. They are the kind of ideas you don't like to think people think, much less take the time to place in a newspaper, even one that is free. A fuming friend who is Jewish pointed them out to me, obviously seeking a like mind to blast the perpetrators. This, to me, is the equivalent of yelling fire in a crowded theater, he said, using the off-sided measure of where First Amendment free speech rights end and the endangerment of the general welfare begins. Of course, I agreed initially, and not simply on the basis of color, but then I had to reevaluate my position. Shouldn't free expression be free? Isn't the expression of these opinions as protected as those in this column? Was this yelling fire? The phone sex and escort ads in the reader, as well as many of the idiotic messages between jokesters and lovers also can be offensive. But do the ads or those in any number of other free-spirited publications incite disorder? When you begin to try to draw an exact line between what is and isn't acceptable, the next step is to forbid all such dissent. That, essentially, is un-American. The line drawn by the reader goes beyond that drawn by the Tribune, for example. Yet within the First Amendment is protection for them both. It ensures freedom of speech, press, religion, and the right to assembly and petition. Anyone who doesn't like the reader ads can send in his own or start a publication or march in protest under the very same amendment that permitted the offending material. And the Constitution also allows some room to take a publication to court to try to make the judiciary redraw the line. We do get complaints every once in a while, said Robert A. Roth, publisher and editor of The Reader. What it comes down to is a choice between running offensive opinions or censoring offensive opinions. I prefer not to be the censor. And it's not that I like the contents of our personals. In fact, I never read them. And it is my recommendation to anyone who finds them offensive that they never read them again. I don't know anybody who reads them, but I know they are very popular. Should someone allow shameful or distasteful opinion to be expressed? I say yes, because the alternative is so dangerous. We don't care if people picket us or whatever. We're not going to allow the thought police to control what gets published. Roth says the standard for advertising is that the item not be illegal. You may find hate ads, but not ads that advocate murder. We have thousands of classifieds in which these fine distinctions and judgment calls have to be made. Housing discrimination is a real thicket for his ad staff, he said. The official policy is that we want to allow the maximum possible expression of opinion. So you won't find us denying the military the right to run recruitment ads or the anti-military point of view or abortionists, or the pro-life movement. 
You won't find us attempting to decide for our readers what's healthy, wholesome, or edifying. We're just going to let it run. Even if it promotes lung cancer, and we know that, we're not going to step in to protect them from lung cancer. We're not going to step in to protect them from opinion. The danger in our society is not from someone having the opinion that Martians are scum, but from those trying to keep another person from saying who he thinks are scum. They are transparently in favor of freedom of speech for themselves, but they want to deny the other guy's freedom of speech because they say he's a cretin. Maybe they're right. The person who puts in the offensive ad may be a cretin. I'm just not going to leave the determination up to those accusing him. I stand offended, but ready to defend. November 6, 1983. Black Votes and Jesse Jackson. It will be nearly impossible to be black and publicly against Jesse Jackson in the presidential race. And yet blacks must keep in mind that as he has every right to run, so too have they the right to vote for whomever they please, for whatever reason they please. Julian Bond, the Georgia state legislator, has put it in words that display the proper diplomacy. If we insist that white candidates cease taking advantage of us, we must make the same demand of black candidates too. Plenty of big-name black opponents of Jackson have not wished him well. Among them are Coretta Scott King, Atlanta Mayor Andrew Young, Detroit Mayor Coleman Young, and the NAACP's Benjamin Hooks. Mayor Harold Washington is so far noncommittal and definitely distant. There is, of course, a matter of egos underlying this rift. Jackson does not need the blessings of any of them, but some of them wish he had asked. Yet there is enough ego on his part, too, to have dragged out his official announcement, made several announcements that he would soon announce, and finally, last Sunday, announced to CBS Mike Wallace that he was going to announce. Jackson is adroit at doing what is good for the masses by doing what is good for himself. Emotions are feverish among blacks. To express any doubt about which lever you might pull is heresy. Already he is the candidate to be for if you are black because he is black. Contrary to myth, that was not the best or only reason black Chicagoans had for voting for Harold Washington. Washington brought together the black poor and middle class, giving new courage to black businesses, politicians, and clergy to free themselves of the old power structure's grip. There are signs already that Jackson is doing just the opposite. Many of those whom Jackson is hoping to find at the end of his rainbow coalition cannot hope to contribute to the pot of gold that should also be there to run a campaign. There haven't been this many charges of Uncle Tom in the air since the 60s. If black people get hung up on using sentiment for or against Jackson as a measure of each other's blackness, solidarity to the cause or 
some other such sloganism, it will hurt not just Jackson, but the real symbolism his candidacy represents. And there is undeniable symbolism in his running. If I have a chance just once in my life to vote for a black man for president, I'm going to do it, said one supporter testifying in the pride Jackson has sparked. And white support should not be written off. Let's look again at the off-sided pros and cons. First, Jackson has little chance of becoming president. True. But who is to say he won't perform well? Even the likelihood that he will be vice president is slim. Although his most ardent disciples prophesy a winning John Glenn Jesse Jackson ticket. Second, he has not paid political dues. Despite a run for mayor, this is a valid but minor complaint. Even without a list of political courtesy titles or appointments, Jackson is attractive against the whole field. Third, Jackson will ruin the chance to get Reagan off the stage. People who are going to vote for Reagan are going to do so regardless of Jackson's presence in the primaries. Fourth, Jackson is going to bring up issues that no one else would. So too will a Hispanic female. Jackson will add interest in voters on the strength of his oratory alone, and he will lose equal numbers for it. But to think that dozens of black politicians at the local, state, and national level will ride in on Jackson's coattails is to overestimate the length of those coattails. State Comptroller Roland Burris, who has announced for the Senate race, could do quite nicely even without Jackson. Must there be a black candidate in order for blacks to vote? If you were the only black in a community, would you not vote just because there were no black candidate? Jackson's candidacy is a fascination. Most black people asked who among the front runners they would trust with their future would pick him. But have they really thought about the reasons why? December 7th, 1983. The black quarterback syndrome. The defection of quarterback Vince Evans from the Chicago Bears provides an ideal introduction for the fable of the black everyman and his drive to life's greater goals. Evans recently switched from the National Football League to the United States Football League's Chicago Blitz after seven years with the Bears. He is being touted by the Blitz for his market value his drawing ability, his name. He has negotiated a four-year, $5 million contract, which may seem reasonably plenty to some for his move. But while Evans' accountant has a stake in his move, there is more to it than money. There is more to it than Evans' pride versus that of Jim McMahon, who Bears coach Mike Ditka has knighted as his starting quarterback. There is more to it than sports. To a great many black Chicagoans, Evans is the literal embodiment of the quarterback syndrome. This society's pathological unwillingness to accept blacks in leadership roles. 
His predicament is representative of black life in sports, in politics, in business, or whatever. Before someone jumps to conclusions, there is no name calling against anyone connected to the Bears. And Evans has neither implied nor engaged in such charges. The man just wants to play football. I offer no armchair psychology about Evans himself or his action, and I leave to my capable colleagues in sports the duty of reviewing Evans' career, his wins and losses, his passing yardage, whether he did or didn't make the grade. But I do presume to offer some psychoanalysis about blacks and the place assigned to them by the larger society, which seems always to have to have a great white hope to reaffirm its domination. Why am I trying to use an athlete's professional decision to switch teams to discuss prejudice? Because it is so subtly pervasive and subversive that through black eyes, very little can be discussed exclusive of it. Blacks follow the weekly ritual of awaiting the coach's pronouncement on who will be starting quarterback for more than its informational value. The significance of Evans being the starting quarterback is difficult to express. What blacks want to see is one of their own at center stage. Running back Walter Payton is a whiz and the ball would go nowhere without him as well. But to illustrate further this application of sports to the game of life, why must blacks always be receivers and runners? It is uplifting to see Evans at work because a black man is in control of something in this world for just a few hours, win or lose. It is a snippet of success and each is accumulated just like string in anticipation of the day when it may add up to a substantial skein. This may seem too heady a discussion of a simple sports story, but here is an example applied to politics. Many blacks maintain that it was the quarterback syndrome that defeated Los Angeles Mayor Tom Bradley in his bid to become California's first black governor. No matter what the voting patterns or statistical analysis show, many blacks feel that once white Californians were in the voting booth, a lot of them were hit by the syndrome, and they were suddenly and unthinkingly gripped with dread at the prospect of a black person running their state. The effect the syndrome would have was much talked about during the election of Harold Washington, too. How many whites simply could not, cannot now, accept black leadership? You don't have to hate anyone to be so afflicted. You simply have to live from day to day in a world in which there are too few black quarterbacks in industry, in sports management, in government, in corporate boardrooms, in small business. In this world, blacks are regulated to second string or tokens. The syndrome can afflict anyone. In fact, Blacks are victimized twice by it. First, they are left out. Then, they must confront the horrible truth of their own stunted expectations when they are flabbergasted to find a black in authority quarterbacking. 
If in an imaginary land of blue and green people, the blue people were always shown in a good light and the green people were always shown in a bad light, isn't it conceivable that the blue people and the green people would come to see blue as better? If, as is traditional in this society, you never see a particular group in control of something, this distorted view becomes the accepted and then the acceptable way of life. Think of the adjustments society is still trying to make to see women as more than mommies. If people can begin to understand how image can feed bias as it applies to gender, why do they close their eyes when blacks try to apply it to race? The more black quarterbacks there are, trained adequately, competing equitably, trusted unquestionably, the fairer life will be. Uh, the fairer. Hmm. Context of white supremacy. Uh, folks have commentary they would like to get in for the second audio segment. Feel free. The number to dial is 641 715 The code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. Uh, everyone uh, who, dials in, who dialed in with a hand up uh, should be with us. Uh, Mr. Demery Four, uh, retired firefighter, Roz, uh, our narrator, caller in Michigan, uh, and Thomas in New York. Uh, if you do not have your hand up and you think you would like to participate, do not wait until the end of the hour to call in and put your hand up. Uh, go ahead and get your hand up right now. If you need to dial in, uh, that way we can get you on the line if you have comments you would like to share. Uh, all the folks I just mentioned, you should be uh, with us. If you have commentary, uh, feel free. Can I be heard? Yes. Uh, I guess, Ross, if you want to go, go first. Uh, okay, thank you. Um, yeah, there was actually something I wanted to talk about from the previous segment. Um, and some of the things you brought up from the previous segment, as well as a couple of things, yeah, I'll try and be as quick as possible. Um, as far as the, the last segment, there was a section where she wrote, uh, so many whites unconsciously have never considered that blacks could do much of anything, least of all get a black candidate this close to being mayor of Chicago. My colleagues looked up and realized perhaps for the first time that I was one of them. I was suddenly threatening. The difference that everybody had tried to cover up was there in the open. It leaked right out and started and stared at us, excuse me, and defied us to try and put it away. Whites were out of their wits with plain wet your pants fear. Happy black people can only mean unhappy white people in this town. I never realized how far I had strayed. And this just reminds me of um, when President Obama was elected. You just saw all of this elation on black people's face. And over time, you saw white people's face go from a smile to a frown. And it just, just reminds me of um, Dr. Wilson as well, when she talks about whites' fear of genetic annihilation. And when they first voted Obama into office, um, everybody was acting like everything was great and, you know, change was going to come. And then over time, white people started to think, like, what do we do? We put a black man in the White House. And then from there, for the, his entire presidency, basically all hell broke loose as far as how they mistreated him and his family. Um, so that section really reminded me of that. The other thing, when you were talking about uh, suicide and infanticide amongst the slaves, it made me think of something. I'm not a big TV watcher, but I saw a commercial for 
this show called Underground that John Legend is the executive producer of. And it's uh, actually about uh, black people who's, who ran away from uh, the plantation and ran through the underground to, to try and seek freedom. And in the very first episode, they actually had a, a, a black female who gave birth to her baby. Um, and she ended up drowning the child because she did not want the child to actually be born into, born into slavery or become a slave. And the moment you talked about infanticide, that's the first thing that came to my mind. When you talked about Donald Trump and um, the abuse that black people are suffering in the crowd, um, it made me think of uh, Donald Trump cementing his Ben Tillman-esque legacy simply because of the sheer violence that has happened at just about every um, debate or any other appearance that he's made, there's been violence um, perpetrated against black people at just about every one. And that just reminds me of uh, Ben Tillman and what we read about all the violence surrounding him at his events as well. And when you talked about uh, Andrew, Andrew Jackson having to climb out the window at his own inauguration due to the, the savage behavior of the white people in the White House at that time and um, her use of the term street to describe Jesse Jackson, I was saying, um, I thought to myself, if anyone on the call has ever seen like a smack DVD with these rappers and they go to the ghetto with these, with these young black males and they're around and there's like 20, 30, 40, 50 guys with guns and they, you know, they're flashing the guns to the camera. And I thought about the fact that black people got all of that behavior that we associate with street from white people, um, whether it's gangsterism, all of that stuff all comes from our, our interactions with, and following the um, the lead of white people. Um, so I just wanted to just put that out there. And then when you get to the, the section of the reading now uh, that we just went through, when they get to Vanessa Williams and she was dis discussing colorism, um, it's just, it's, it's really uh, almost nauseating how poisonous uh, colorism is in the DNA and psych psyche of black people. And this is all due to racism, white supremacy, creating these ideologies that someone whose genetics has been sadly uh, tainted and miscegenated, um, they're somehow either better than the darker ones and then the darker ones think they're not black enough. Like that sort of intra-racial um, misbehavior is something we just have to work to eradicate. And it's something that I actually saw in my own family. Like my, my mother would tell me stories of um, the fact that when she first came to the, when she first went back to Trinidad after living in the States, um, when she saw her mother, her mother, she had lightened up because essentially in the wintertime there's not enough sun, so she's not as dark as she would be if she was living in Trinidad. So my grandmother would make a statement like, oh, this is not my daughter. And then like a week later after she darkened up from being in the sun, she would say, oh, there she is. And um, it was there was this play on her darkening up to be the daughter she remembered. And when I was born, I was born uh, very light-skinned, but I darkened up to like medium brown by the time I was like one and a half, two years old. And she, I was one of her favorite grandkids, and she used to actually um, tell my mother, that my sister's a little older than me, she would say, um, move that, that girl away from me. I won the old nigga Yankee. So for my grandmother in, in Trinidad, they call Americans old Yankees. So I was the old nigga Yankee for her, and it was a, supposedly a term of affection. But ultimately, she was speaking to the fact that I had darkened up from being light-skinned before. So um, that really just hit home as far as just how damaging that psychology of amongst black people um, can be. And um, where is it? Uh, oh, where she talks about on page uh, 51, she says, if as 
Oh, if as is traditional in this society, you never see a particular group in control of something, this distorted view becomes the accepted and then the acceptable way of life. That brief statement really spoke volumes to me because the way I interpreted that was essentially she was saying you never see a particular group, and I interpreted that to be black people in control of something. And, and essentially, you don't see us in control of anything. It's white people. So the group she's referring to, even though she says, she says it in a way where you never see a particular group, she's really saying it's white people. And the distorted view becomes accepted and then the acceptable way of life. And it made me think of the fact that black people do not control any of the, the 10 areas of people activity. White people do. And they have now distorted and twisted everything into a racist, white supremacist reality. And we have now been forced to see that, see that as an acceptable way of life. Thank you, and I'll mute my line there. For sure. Uh, the other folks who dialed in with a hand up, do you all have comments you want to make sure you get in? Uh, Mr. Demery Ford, uh, we heard you before. Did you have comments you wanted to get in? Uh, yes, may we heard. Yes, sir. Okay, yes. Uh, Roz. Uh, just about summed it up, but um, from the last piece that um, she was saying that um, she was crushed by their inability to share the excitement of one of us making it into power. And when she said she built walls against whites who once thought of as my lunch and vacation friends. And that's just showing her inability to uh, understand what it means to be white. And then she said that Harold Washington's election was a race war. And uh, when black and white people interact, Whites has always been at war against black people. It's just that blacks are not aware that we are at war. And the part uh, about the litmus test, um, she named some people, some of her co-workers, but the only litmus test you need is what the host Gus used when he asked white people. Are you a white person? Those who classify themselves as white are considered suspect racists. And the part about the colorism, you know, that is, uh, like Roz was saying, a perpetuation of uh, what the white supremacists, the dominant group, uh, have imposed this color scheme and that's us as black people imitating them also i'll mute my line for sure uh other folks uh who dialed in do y'all have commentary you want to add may i be heard yes ma'am um well uh on the second segment on uh, page 43, where she uh, states um, in the article or essay, Beautiful is Black in Miss America, um, where she stated, where is it at? 
um, what Williams should keep in mind is that she, like other firsts, achieve what they do for the most part because by not being overly black. It just made me think of um, uh, President Obama and how I just remember so much conversation about, um, oh, he is not just a black president and how he had to, you know, kind of walk a fine line with making sure he wasn't the black president and he had to, you know, make sure he didn't really come across that he was addressing just black issues. Um, I thought about um, how it was, you know, um, just just his skin coloration. He comes from um, a white parent and a black parent. Um, how that made white people comfortable from just the conversations that I heard. So um, that kind of stuck out to me. And then that color consciousness piece is uh, definitely uh, – prevalent in my family. My grandmother, uh, it's just interesting because anytime there's a baby uh, born in my family, she makes it a point to say, bring the baby over, make sure that, um, you know, I get to see the baby immediately. And what she does is checks the ears um, and to see the color of the ears. And I just kind of studied her because she would look to see like if there's like a dark shade on the ear. And she'll say, oh, my goodness, the baby's going to be dark. And, you know, my daughter, she's, um, I'm, I'm brown-skinned, and my daughter is light-skinned, and she has, you know, light-colored eyes. And I remember, um, like it was yesterday, um, when my daughter was born, she was very light-skinned, um, and her ears weren't shaded dark. And my grandmother was so elated. She was like, oh, my goodness, and it's just I could just tell the difference and how she treated my daughter versus even my sons who are dark um, and the other grandchildren that she has. Um, she makes it a point to check the ears to see what complexion they're going to be. So when I read that, I was like, wow, that is so ingrained, um, you know, still. And to this day, if there's a child born, she's just animate about making sure she sees the child right when they, you know, right when they're like between six weeks, you know, before they like six to eight weeks. So that really stuck out to me. Um, and I'll mute my line. Yes. Can we hear it again? Yes, sir. I was uh, kind of surprised that she did not mention about the scandal that Miss Williams, uh, was involved in. Well, it actually came to light, uh, very shortly, all very shortly after she was crowned uh, Miss America, uh, involving uh, 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 I guess nude, quote unquote, pornographic uh, photographs. Uh, this may have been a uh, uh, direct reason on why she was uh, uh, picked the winner to be able to humiliate. Uh, uh, non-white black quote-unquote beauty uh, uh, by exposing her in these uh, 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 photographs that are not, you know, very complimentary because in one of the photographs, I mean, the whole thing went, it, I would say it went viral before the, the term viral existed. 
uh, in one of the photographs, she had her uh, face in the buttocks of uh, a white female. Uh, I remember that vividly back during that time. Uh, and uh, uh, and I would figure something of that magnitude as far as the quote-unquote title and the time they put in, that through the investigations of these individual contestants, they already knew about this information, <laughs> but just was withholding it. You know, say, okay, well, if her talent takes her to uh, a... Uh, a uh, position to where she can win, then we have this in our pocket, so to speak. Uh, I, don't, I don't mean a metaphor, but we have it. We have it in reserve uh, to be able to hand it out. This, I mean, I'm not saying it's something that's not unrealistic because white people use that tactic uh, all the time, uh, uh, and in some cases, it's, it's been used against uh, the president of the United States. Uh, uh, Vince Evans uh, was a pretty good quarterback, uh, and uh, ironically, he went to the same uh, college that Orenthal James Simpson went to, USC, at a different time later, came out later after he did. Uh, I, I was just like on the edge of waiting, you know, what she got to say something about Walter Payton, <laughs> because Walter Payton actually was the... Uh, uh, mover, main mover and shaker on, on Chicago Bears during most of his career there. Uh, and certainly was uh, uh, instrumental in uh, to getting uh, that area's uh, NFL franchise into a Super Bowl. And in an indirect way, strategy-wise, for them to be able to win that Super Bowl. But... Uh, yeah, those, those are just on my, my, my comments from the, the second reading. Thank you. For sure. Did we uh, miss anybody? Anybody have any comments they wanted to get in before we wrap things up? Um, can I say something, Gus? Uh, I if will, no one else is going in. I didn't know if we had missed anybody. I will make sure you get to comment before uh, we wrap. Um, just get okay. a few tidbits in and, and then I'll check back in with Roz um, the beautiful is black in America she had two essays um, talking about uh, Miss America and Vanessa Williams and <clears throat> it reminded me a lot of President Obama and a lot of these uh, symbolic firsts uh, when a black person is allowed to do something in the system of white supremacy, not that that black person isn't talent, talented, uh, that she brought up about John Williams, who that was pretty much what he was saying, co former coach uh, at Georgetown. Uh, it's not that lots of black people aren't talented and capable of doing any number of things, uh, but in a system of white supremacy, white people, racists, uh, they allow maybe a few black people to do certain things, maybe a few non-white people to do certain things. Most, they do not. Uh, and you see that every day. Talented black people who are just not allowed, don't get the uh, opportunity uh, to go out and be successful in these different areas. I think it is important that, uh, particularly when you think about the impact, like the, when the previous essay on Harold Washington and the happiness that was expressed by many black people in Chicago when he won. If you uh, think of the similarity uh, with how black people in 2008 uh, responded to President Obama 
uh, when he was elected or even in South Africa when Nelson Mandela was elected. I think a lot of us in our confusion about racism, white supremacy, uh, we have a difficult time grasping how much the system of white supremacy can accommodate. Uh, where whites can continue to dominate and terrorize us, even if they have a white, uh, excuse me, a non-white person in the White House, even if they have uh, a non-white person as president in South Africa, even if we have a black person as Miss America, white supremacy can accommodate all of these things. And I think that that confuses many of us because when whites don't allow us to do certain things for a long time, when they change and allow us to do some of these things, uh, it can really confuse us to where we think, hey, we're really making, quote unquote, progress. We're getting things done when that is not the case at all. Uh, I think so, just these quote what they call symbolic uh, victories. I think a lot of us get very confused by them and it, it really does not change the power dynamic of white supremacy, racism at all. Uh, and I would hope 2016 more of us uh, grasp that. Uh, the even make sure before I forget Clarence Page, the editor, her uh, Leonita McLean's uh, former husband, editor of this text. And again, he wrote a lot of the introductions to these pieces. Uh, he had an essay that was just published this week on Bernie Sanders, uh, where Bernie Sanders at the uh, Flint debate with Hillary Clinton. They were asked, I believe, by Don Lemon, they were asked about their, quote unquote, racial blind spots. And the response, it generated a lot of uh, controversy, I guess, Bernie Sanders saying that whites don't know about the ghetto and whites don't know what it's like to be in poverty. Clarence Page wrote a uh, piece uh, where he was discussing that. You can check it out. I can link it if folks want to read it. Uh, but back to the Miss America piece. Uh, I found the New York Times article that she referenced uh, just to give full context to the section. So uh, this is from 1984 uh, talking about Vanessa Williams win. The New York Times piece reads viewers, therefore, could forgive the Miss America pageant almost anything. And goodness knows there were there were things they had to forgive. The evening gowns beaded and sequenced were gaudy and tacky. The musical numbers, as always, were unimaginative. And the Miss America contestants, as always, were made up to look remarkably alike. And it was here that this year's contest produced an extraordinary anomaly for almost the first two thirds of its 62 years. The Miss America pageant barred black contestants. Meanwhile, its most ardent supporters would be hard pressed to argue even now that it celebrates cultural pluralism. Yet on the night of September 17, 1983, a black woman, Vanessa Williams of New York, was chosen Miss America, while another black woman, Suzette Charles of New Jersey, was chosen first runner-up. In the social history of our times, this will be something larger than a footnote. Uh, just to give the other paragraph that she uh, actually quoted. I just picked the, uh, the wrong first paragraph to start with. Okay. Uh, Therefore, chalk up one for diversity, but put something down for homogenization, too. It is unlikely that many viewers knew for sure whether the two young women were black or white. Miraculously, the pageant's lighting and makeup experts had reduced any number of contestants to beige. Coincidentally, in Washington this week, a House committee held hearings on the underrepresentation of minorities on television. Witnesses said that blacks were nearly invisible. In its innocence, the Miss America pageant had performed the extraordinary feat of making Miss Williams and Miss Charles invisible 
two. Uh, this is by John Corey, September 22nd, 1983. Critics Notebook, uh, Verities, Sustain Miss America Pageant. Uh, just thought that was interesting to get the full uh, paragraph in for context. Um, which, again, just uh, makes my point. When whites do not allow black people to do certain things for a while, you can't ride on this bus, you can't eat here. Uh, and then they allow us to do these things. A lot of us just get very confused, not realizing that whites can change it so that we are not allowed to do those things anytime they want to. And that even if they do allow us to do this, it really has not changed the power dynamic at all. Uh, I thought it it stood out immediately. And these essays are presented chronologically. So uh, the stuff that we're reading now in this section of the book is all post the essay, How Chicago Taught Me to Hate Whites. So when she says my defense of an offense where she says a fuming friend who is Jewish pointed out these, I guess, racist commentary that was in uh, this Chicago uh, publication. Certainly there are many non-white people who classify themselves as being quote unquote Jewish uh, or a Jew. We've had some on the program. I would probably take the wager that this quote unquote Jewish friend is a white person. Uh, I would take the over on that all day every day, uh, twice on Sunday, Uh, just again to make the point, as I said before, uh, that that anger at whites, it tends to wear out. It's not the sort of thing that you can rely on, uh, that black people are going to stay angry uh, at white people, even whatever the acute incident is, it tends to fade. If you don't have a code based on logic, science of what racism is, it's not going to sustain us having correct Uh, behavior. I don't care what the person says when they're in their moment of rage uh, at whites. Uh, I thought the piece on Jesse Jackson was uh, pretty significant. We got symbolism again (laughs) where she says, and there's undeniable symbolism in his running. If I have a chance just once in my life to vote for a black man for president, I'm going to do it, said one supporter testifying to the pride Jackson has sparked. I feel like I have heard that Many, 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 many times uh, in my life, particularly over the last eight years, for some reason, I feel like I have uh, heard that a lot. And again, I just I take it to I think for many black people, when we have not seen certain things under a system of white supremacy, you don't you don't see a lot of black people on television. You don't see a black female looked at as as. Uh, the person that's supposed to represent beauty or sex appeal. You don't see black people as supposed to representing a starting quarterback or being intelligent, being president for a lot of us. uh, We're so downtrodden. We're so beaten upon that just anything uh, does a lot for our self-esteem. Even OJ Simpson being exonerated, like great as a horrendous, uh, excuse me. It is a, uh, just a monumental day on the plantation uh, when that really has not changed our situation at all. Uh, the essay on the black quarterback, I thought that was uh, significant as well. Pretty significant range, I would say. She covers quite a few uh, topics in terms of what she writes about. Uh, I thought it was interesting, even when she talks about the blue and green people that reminded me, Pam, uh, Trojan Horse Publications, also a Chicago resident. Uh, she has a section in her book where she pretty much presents the same logic to get people to understand why it's, I think, difficult for many uh, non-white people, victims of racism, to grasp Uh, a black person being in charge uh, of something. I thought it was significant when she says, if people can begin to understand how image can feed bias as it applies to gender, why do they close their eyes when blacks try to apply it to race? I think she's talking about white people. She just didn't state that clearly. And I think this goes to when they are talking about changing uh, the way we think about gender, they're talking about white women that just never gets stated explicitly. They're not talking about all females. They're talking about white women exclusively and whites are not closing their eyes metaphor 
they are dedicated to practicing racism, white supremacy. They totally rebuke any notion of discontinuing white supremacy, racism. And the last comment I'll get in uh, with regards to colorism. I think you all did a great job. That is a product uh, of racism, white supremacy. I would just add nobody is more what they call color conscious than whites. And you see this with the way whites talk about other individuals who are classified as whites. We've had Dr. Welsing on this program many times over the years, and she talked about in detail the way that whites talk about the complexion of John Boehner, who is classified as a white man, but they would talk about his skin complexion all the time. You see the same thing with Donald Trump, people talking about his skin complexion. They even uh, somebody made this video that went viral this week where they have a uh, makeup line that is supposed to be based on Donald Trump and his complexion. Bill Maher talks about jokes about both of these individuals and their skin complexion being darker than what we typically phenotypically associate with individuals who classify themselves as white. Uh, not to mention the way that whites talk about black people, dark people of all complexions, no matter how much melanin you have or lack, uh, just to make sure that that, because I think a lot of times when people talk about being obsessed with skin color, people act as though whites are not obsessed at all. And it's, they are the ones that have everybody else responding in this manner. Nobody is more color conscious than racist woman, racist man. Uh, People did it today. Uh, I'm not taking people that called in because I've been watching the uh, switchboard the whole time, calling in, putting their hand up late. Thomas in New York, I, uh, I'm taking you just because I did see uh, that your hand was up. I thought your, your line was open. Maybe it wasn't. Thomas in New York, did you have anything? And then we'll get Roz before we wrap. Thomas in New York. Yeah, yeah you muted me uh, halfway through, and I was um, sending you emails, and I just decided to put myself back in the queue. Um, I just wanted to say you kind of pointed it out with the article you know, everybody's commentary was great. Um, that the runner up, I mean, she was just as white as um as Vanessa Williams was at, at back then. And um and then um, you know, we started getting um very light actresses and then you got Halle Berry, but then they switched it up on us recently and then we get the um the total opposite. You know, we get um Precious and we get um, you know, Lapita Miongo. And it's um, very odd. And then you see the same type of conversations now, you know, going on with the dark skin um, acceptance and things of that nature. And I just thought that that was um, very compelling. And I'm even more on thinking. For sure. Ross, and that'll wrap us up. Uh, yes, actually, there's a couple of things that stood out. Um, speaking of Donald Trump, I think the last time we read this, 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 this particular book, um, one of the black females brought up his, uh, I guess, wife or girlfriend named Melania and I actually looked that up today. And actually, Melania means dark or black in Greek, and it's also related to the name Melanie. So anyone named Melanie might be also indicative of them having melanin because it directly relates to melanin. Um, also, when you discussed about the section of her discussing black first um, and the confusion it creates for non-white people, um, it's so true. It reminds me of Stockholm Syndrome. Like, you go through such abuse and mistreatment that finally when your abuser treats you nice and goes out to Burger King and talks to you in soft tones, you think you're making headway and things are going to get better, and then they go back and they kick you in the face and then they shove you back in the cage and lock you up. You know, and to me, that's what they do with us because we've been so conditioned after 500 years of, with being abused 
that when they do allow one or two of us or a couple of us to get a little something out of the system that looks like it's more than what everyone else is getting, we all, you know, we open up and we get all emotional and then boom, they go back and everything goes back on lockdown and it's, you know, mistreatment of blacks skyrockets all over again. And it's, you're right, it's something that we need to really pay a lot of attention to. And um, the firefighter in Florida, this is the last thing I wanted to discuss, he brought up um, Vanessa Williams being set up. And it was so incredible when he discussed that because essentially it seems to me, and this is just, again, just studying history, what they did to her was kind of what they did to Cleopatra. Um, In Roman culture, actually the reason why she committed suicide was because in Roman culture when they uh, subdue a people, they would take the ruler of that country, bring them to Rome, and parade them through the city so that the Romans could beat beat on them, throw fruit, fruit at them, curse at them, disrespect them, and then they would finally kill them. So to avoid that fate, when Cleopatra uh, lost the fight with uh, with uh, uh, Octavius, she killed herself because that was exactly what they were going to do to her. So with uh, Vanessa Williams, essentially, they were like, yes, we're going to give you this. We're going to let one of you through the door. But we have a caveat, and that caveat is that we're going to ruin the black female image by showing her to be some sort of pornographic freak. And um, that just like was a straight epiphany when um, the firefighter from Florida brought that up. Uh, thank you so much for taking my call. Right on. Uh, we will wrap there. Uh, I could have probably done a little less reading this week to allow more time because I think there are lots of comments that could be made about a lot of the uh, material that uh, we covered in the book. Uh, and more to come. Uh, she does go into detail about the Black Panthers in Chicago, Fred Hampton, uh, Mark Clark. She writes about uh, the Atlanta child murders, which is quote unquote Atlanta child murders, which is something that I personally uh, am interested in researching. That was uh, broadcast number one when we came back to the air in 2009. Uh, so quite a bit more to come uh, in her essays and what have you as we proceed in the book. Uh, thanks again to our narrator, uh, caller in Michigan, for uh, doing a great job and investing her time and energy to read the book. I uh, hope it's been constructive for folks listening in, and we'll pick back up uh, next week. Uh, we are not quite halfway through the book, but making good progress. Uh, next Friday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, we'll be here tomorrow. Compensatory call-in, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. Uh, tune in. Looking forward to catching up on uh, what has transpired last seven days. Uh, workplace racism, certainly. Uh, with that, uh, again, sobriety would be best under conditions of white terrorism. Uh, you never know when you're going to be behind John Burge. So we're talking about Chicago, Daniel Holtzclaw, Darren Wilson. Uh, you want to be sober so you can make the best possible decision, whether you are a driver, passenger, pedestrian. Uh, whites can ruin your life in a matter of seconds. You want to be cognizant at all times. Be alert, hyper alert, I would say, in this uh, this particular point uh, in the system. Uh, with that, we'll be back tomorrow. If you have questions, problems, suggestions, drop an email until justice at Gmail dot Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. Aid us in guarding, replenishing our black mental health. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, brother. 
for Victor. Uh, my victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my condition. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Uh. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.